Let's all go to the movies. Let's all go to the the movies. Let's all go to the the movies to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. Mutation. It is the key to our evolution. It has enabled us to evolve from a single-celled organism into the dominant species on the planet. This process is slow, normally taking thousands and thousands of years. But every few hundred millennia, evolution leaps forward. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Let's All Go to the Marvels. Uh, we are sworn to protect this world that hates and fears us. I am Doug Leaf. Hey, I'm uh, Jordan T. Maxwell. Welcome to the podcast. I hope you survive the experience. Yeah, and uh, we are uh, doing X-Men for Xmas. Uh, we are doing the very first uh, film in the Brian Singer-helmed X-Men franchise. And uh, before we get going, just a reminder to, uh, if you've been enjoying this show, please go on iTunes and drop us a review. That's always really helpful. And uh, if you want to reach out to us and communicate with us, uh, go to at... Uh, go to the Marvels at Twitter and drop us a line there. So um, with that stuff out of the way, um, Jordan, I, I imagine that you've read quite a bit of X-Men comics over your uh, your uh, your life. Do, do you remember when you first kind of became aware of the X-Men or, or how you encountered them? I do, I do, and I have. Um, the X-Men are, are very, very dear to my heart. Um, they're probably... Um, they were... For a very long time in my uh, comic reading life, uh, for a good long while as a kid, like the only comics I would read were X-Men comics. I remember first becoming aware of them. Um, a friend of mine, uh, when I was in third grade, I want to say, um, his older brother, this is actually my first exposure, I think, to a lot of the Marvel characters outside of Spider-Man. Uh, he was big into comics and had like, posters up all over his room and like, you know, cool stuff. And like, you know, I didn't know the comics at all. So I just had these very early images of like Wolverine and storm. And there was this awesome, uh, poster of, uh, the thing. Um, and, uh, I know we'll get into the fantastic four movies eventually, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, that was like my first, and I was just so visually drawn. They looked so different, than any other superhero that I was familiar with. Like, so different from Spider-Man or Superman or Batman. Um, the first um, first stories I remember reading of them wasn't even the story. I remember, because I knew the, the visual so well, I was at... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to date myself here, kiddos. There used to be these things called video rental stores. Where you could go and borrow, you would pay them to borrow. It was like a library for VHS tapes um, that you could take. But Jordan, what's watch. a VHS tape? Well, <laughs> well, Doug, <laughs> uh, a VHS tape was a Blu-ray player for old people. Yeah, I just um, showed just to quickly go into tangent. I just showed my kids a cassette tape for the first time. Not a VHS, oh, wow. but an audio cassette tape. They, they, my kids don't know anything from physical media. My daughter was born in 2016, and my son is 2019, so they've never seen a CD. You know, they don't even have to use a Blu-ray disc because we have an Apple TV. So it was like 
they were, they were just like she could not figure out what to do with the thing. She's like, which way does it go? And then it got to the end, and she was like, well, you have to flip it over. Which way? What does that mean? Ninety degrees this way, one hundred and eighty this way. It was really cute to watch them fumble with that. But uh, anyway, uh, digression uh, concluded. Go on, go on about the X Men. I'm the one who goes on tangents here, Doug. Come on, you're stealing my thunder. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> um, but they had a copy of uh, the not even the night. This is this is how old I am, y'all. Uh, this wasn't even the uh, the '90s X Men cartoon that introduced so many people to it. Uh, That's where I found was, it. Yeah. Yeah, this was the little scene. I think you can find it on YouTube now. Um, they did a pilot for an X-Men cartoon uh, in the mid to late 80s uh, that was called uh, Pride of the X-Men. Pride spelled with a Y. That's Kitty Pride for all of you out there. Because the first episode was her showing up at uh, the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters and meeting the X-Men, uh, including, uh, <laughs> a bit prophetically, an Australian Wolverine. Hmm. Um, which, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that this predicted Hugh Jackman playing the fam- most famous Canadian, but I'm not saying it didn't. Um, and I I watched that thing so many times. It is... Not great, but it is fun. And this was at a time when there was little superhero or even like comic book adapted media out there. And even as someone who had not yet, this was my burgeoning into kind of the superhero and uh, especially Marvel and X-Men realms. uh, I just devoured it. I watched it so many times. Uh, That shop also had... Uh, Dolph Lundgren's The Punisher, which I imagine we'll get to at some point. And oh, I watched man, I that so that many existed. times. <laughs> to give you the uh, caliber, no pun intended, of the media I had to consume to have any kind of uh, cinematic or animated uh, superhero content in my life, these were these were my bastions. The Pride of the X-Men uh, and the Dolph Lundgren Punisher. Um... And I loved it so much, and like I went, and the f- I, I can tell you exactly the first comics I got, too, because it was one of the first comics I ever got, was Uncanny X-Men, number 274. I remember it very well. Chris Claremont, Jim Lee, a story about Rogue and Magneto in the Savage Land. This was my introduction to the X-Men, so I thought like Magneto, other than having... Because in the cartoon, he's the main bad guy, because of course he's Magneto, and he's the main bad guy. But in this issue, he was the hero. He's the protagonist of this story. And this was my introduction to Rogue as well. And so I've always had a fondness for her because I imprinted early and she's a fantastic character. Um, But it's them in the Savage Land. And I read that thing cover to cover so many times. And... Which was a reprint comic Marvel used to do of... Uh, old comics from uh, the 70s and 80s. Um, And this was uh, Chris Claremont and I want to say Paul Smith did the art for the issue. Uh, And it involved a body swap between Storm and Emma Frost. 
and also had a very prominently featured Kitty Pride, who I knew from the cartoon. I was like, it's all these characters I know. Oh my God. And I just got obsessed. Like I strayed here and there. I, I read, you know, Spider-Man on and off over the years, uh, eventually got into indie comics and stuff. But from about the age of eight or nine until probably like end of high school, I was pretty much exclusively X-Men. Like a good, and that's a, what a good decade of my life. The first decade of my comic book reading experience was almost all devoted to X-Men with like little digressions into like, once I discovered Sandman and the Vertigo books and I was like, oh, mature titles. Ooh, Watchmen. Like, get dark on me, Alan Moore. Um, then I started to expand. But as far as superheroes went, it was X-Men for the longest time. And so when this movie got announced, when this movie came out, it was it was almost a religious experience sitting in the theater and seeing these characters I'd grown up with, literally grown up for half of my life suddenly translated onto the big screen. It was so uh, just like I go back and there are certainly better movies and there are even better X-Men movies, but I still go back and watch this one and just Marvel ha at what, uh, what singer was able to do in the movie, not marveling at anything else. Singer may or may not have done probably did. Um, (laughs) Yeah. We'll talk about that. Um, You know, yeah. But as far as the movie went, and I knew him from usual suspects, but like this was so, 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 so amazing. Yeah. I have fond memories of this movie as well. I I vividly remember when I saw it. Um, I I did watch the X-Men cartoon in the nineties pretty regularly. It wasn't, I I was more slavishly devoted to Batman, the animated series, uh, and some other stuff. But I certainly watched my share of it, and I was familiar with the characters, so that when I went into the theater, I was like, oh, there they are. You know, there are these characters I know. Um, And I saw it, um, I did uh, what a lot of college kids do. I got an internship in Washington, D.C. for a summer, and I was at UCLA at the time. And so there was actually this program where, like, 40 of us went, and I knew a bunch. So it was a bunch of my friends um, all going to Washington, D.C. We were living together. Uh, we were, they kind of set us up in these various places. And so I remember going to see the movie and just being blown away by it and having the the post-movie conversations like you have um, in the metro station, like in the in, like deep down in the bowels of uh, underneath Washington, D.C., in this you know kind of comic booky-looking tunnel where I'm talking about how cool it was. And uh, I, I still like this movie. I think... For me, going back to it, it's been a long time. I think the bloom of, has come off the rose a little bit. I think there's ways in which it's a little creaky here and there. So I'll, I'll sure. but before I lay down my criticisms of the movie, I just want to be clear: I still like the movie. It is a good movie. It's um, so, despite its issues, I think it's really interesting because it's sort of this. Um, it's a it's a test balloon or a proof of concept almost for Absolutely. all of the superhero movies that we're going to come after. We wouldn't be doing this podcast if it wasn't for this movie. And you said something mm-hmm. that I thought was really insightful about how you know there wasn't a lot of superhero media to consume. And I, I was thinking about that a lot as I watched this and how surprising that was because we both lived uh, – we're veterans of Batmania – 
you know, we the mm. Michael Keaton Batman in 1989, it, you can't overstate what a phenomenon that was. And it was sort of surprising, oh, no. yeah, I mean, that it didn't birth a decade's worth of amazing superhero movies. Um, and it just sort of didn't. We got sort of sequels to that movie in diminishing quality. We got the Ninja Turtles movie and some sequels to that in diminishing quality. And some random one-offs, things like The Mask, you know, in the 90s. But really, there's very there's way fewer superhero movies in the 90s than you would have expected, given the popularity of Batman. Um, there was a lot of animation, as we've already talked about a few of those shows. Um, yeah. So, like on TV, it was happening. Uh, there was still there were a lot of pretty solid cartoons. That the the Batman animated series is still, I think, the tops. The Superman one that was sort of spun off from that was great. Um, yeah. The X Men one was great. There, there was a lot of good stuff happening in TV, and in fact, the success of the X Men cartoon was partly what you know kind of gave the last like needed momentum to get this movie made because Avi Arad, who we talked about last time, was a producer on the X-Men animated show as well as this movie. Yeah. Um, so I guess that kind of gives us a good segue to talk into the production of this movie because this thing was been... We talked a lot about how Iron Man was kind of this like confluence of little miracles and good luck that made that movie <laughs> yes. happen. And this is almost like that in reverse. Like This movie succeeds in, in despite the many setbacks it had. And just crazy shit going on, and like, like man, it's a miracle this thing is as good as it was. Um, I don't know where you want to start with yeah, this thing, but it, it was in production all the way. I found out just looking at Wikipedia, they were trying to do this since the '80s with uh, James Cameron and, and uh, Catherine Bigelow attached to it. And I did want to point out the first actors that were being considered for the project were uh, it says were uh, Bob Hoskins as Wolverine and Angela Bassett as Storm. Now I remember that, yeah, yeah. Bob Hoskins as Wolverine is interesting because he has everything you need for a good Wolverine except the physicality. Like, there's a reason he was cast as Mario for the Super Mario Brothers movie. He has Mario's body. He does not have Wolverine's body. But, like, the voice... No, certainly not. And the the, the interesting thing is, and I think it was something that uh, when Hugh Jackman got cast uh, initially... Um, particularly given the fact that no one knew who he really was, especially in the States at that point. Um, yeah, he was and, an unknown. You know, it was, was originally... Unknown. What was that? It was that he was a virtual unknown. This was an absolute, like, just oh, yeah. home-run star-making role for him. Yeah. I mean, he was he was primarily a stage actor. He was a musical theater guy, which, you know, as you know, seeing him play that in college and, like, you know, it's like... Wolverine show up on, you know, Live and Regis and Kelly in like a canary yellow shirt open down to his chest because he's freaking Aussie personified and doing a couple of verses of, oh, what a beautiful morning. Like the cognitive dissonance in my head was just like, I, this is, but it's Logan though. He's Logan, he's, yeah, Logan, he's Logan Valjean. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I remember. Because Wolverine in the comics is, he's a short, burly, not conventionally attractive guy. They make him and look so a little I more remember, like he has the body of a Wolverine a little bit. He's got a little bit yeah, of a, Yeah, yeah, he's stocky. Wolverine. So, like, Bob Hoskins was kind of, like, the, one of the most visual representations. I heard other people... Kids my age, I think, when we would talk about, you know, like, dream casts for X-Men movies. I heard a lot of kids, like, uh, back in middle school, 
wanted uh, De Niro to play him because they were like, you know, it's like, oh, he's got, you know, he's got the nose for it. And he's, you know, he's that, you know, he's Raging Bull, you know, kind of, you know, clearly I went to a middle school where a lot of kids were watching Raging Bull. Um, (laughs) But, and then I remember in high school that all switched and suddenly everybody wanted Glenn Danzig to play him. He was, he was approached for that. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, he's he certainly got the the build for it, and dude's only like five feet tall, so he definitely had, you know, that in his favor. But I remember, you know, hearing Bob Hoskins, who I primarily knew um, as a kid, as uh, you know, the detective from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, um, and that just didn't. But man, Angela Bassett, I still to this day maintain like and i love halle berry and she's an amazing actor and i love her in a lot of things and she has her moments especially in the second one of this franchise but angela bassett like that yeah would have just been I, as soon amazing. as i read that i was like oh yeah and you're right like you know halle berry is she's fine she's not a you know she's not a weak link in the chain or anything but man angela bassett would have been so badass as storm i would love she could still do it yeah well, and like I saw uh, when you know she pops up in Black Panther as Ramonda as his mother, and I'm sitting there and like in in the comics, Black Panther and Storm uh, have been you know married and been involved, and you know they're like the, they're not married anymore, but they're like together again, kind of weirdly. And I was just sitting there and like just there was a moment of cognitive dissonance, and I know that's the second time I dropped that, but it it did pop up in my head of just like this semi Freudian like. T'Challa is that's but that's his what because I still see Angela Bassett as Storm like she's still like the perfect Storm in my mind huh I didn't mean that but uh you know the perfect Storm huh um but she really like embodies that she's just she's got that regality but at the same time like she easily could have been a pickpocket in Cairo like she's got that kind of street smart air about her that does not diminish that regal nature like and that's the fascinating dichotomy of storm in the comics to me and why i think she would have embodied it so perfectly but (laughs) we're talking about people who aren't aren't even in the movie and haven't even gotten to the movie itself yet but yeah it's amazing the casts that might have been well not just the cast of actors that might have been but also the cast of characters that might have been because you know, one mm-hmm. thing that when you're making an X-Men movie is you've got, you have, well, which X-Men and Brotherhood characters are we going to put in it? And this thing went through so many rewrites that they kept cycling through. Like, we want this character. This one's in. This one's out. We want Nightcrawler in there. Oh, we don't have the budget for Nightcrawler. He's out, you know. Um, and they have to keep rejiggering the script. And so, like, for example, the the end script, the, the actual movie that we got, um, aspects of... Um, I think is it Kitty Pride or Jubilee were kind of like sh- morphed w- along into the rogue character that we got. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So like they, you know, they said, okay, we can't put them in there. So, but we want to use rogue, but we'll make rogue a little more like these characters. And, um, but yeah, beast was in at one point. He, you know, that, and, and a lot of these characters show up in later films in the franchise, um, as they want to, you know, put them in. Um, but it's just funny to think like they, they were talking about, we don't have the budget, for Nightcrawler because of all the special effects that would be involved. But, like, they didn't have a special effects house lined up to do the movie until they were already shooting it. Which, like, so you are, you didn't even know if you had the budget to do 
Nightcrawler without even knowing how much you were going to have to pay the person you were going to hire. Like, they were so behind the right. eight ball. Um, they they offered the directorial reins. At one point, they were considering Brett Ratner, who eventually did direct uh, X-Men Last Stand. Uh, Robert Rodriguez, Paul W.S. Anderson. A bunch of people were were in line to direct this. And they eventually went with Brian Singer, who was kind of hot off the usual suspects. And he wanted to do a, a sci-fi movie. They had talked about having him do Alien, what would eventually be Alien Resurrection. But the producer said, no, Brian, we think you'd be a better fit for this. And they kind of convinced him to do it because Brian Singer is um, gay and Jewish. And they thought that, you know, a, as a member of not just one but two minorities, the that aspect of this franchise would appeal to him. And it did. That was something that, that piqued his interest and got him in. It's the thing that got Ian McKellen to want to do it, who is also gay. Um, and Ian McKellen worked, uh, he was starred, oddly enough, playing a Nazi in Brian Singer's film Apt Pupil, which is where he came from. And also Bruce Davison, who is uh, Senator Kelly in the movie, was in Apt Pupil as well. So he he pulled them along too. Um, so that's which where kind of Brian... we came uh, this close to having David Schwimmer as Wolverine. That's right. Who's also... I forgot he's in Apt Pupil too. Um... You know, Brian Singer, you know, I, again, as we said, we're going to sing his praises to the extent that he did things that were ultimately good for this movie and the franchise because this he directed several. He, he directed this one. He directs X2, which is fan-freaking-tastic. There's no denying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got a hand in a lot of the uh, prequel stuff that they eventually did more recently. Um, but, yeah, that, that comes with a big uh, asterisk because of his personal conduct, which, um, you know, a lot of it seems to be exploitative in nature of uh, younger uh, men he was trying to seduce or perhaps succeeded in seducing or grooming. Um, So, again, anytime we praise the successes in this movie, you know, understand we're not trying to whitewash what he did because there was a lot of that stuff that was... Absolutely not. Even in in, in the context of making this movie, um, I had read somewhere, I guess, that he had... So... um, his name Alex Burton, who plays Pyro, um, has a prominent role going forward in the franchise. He's, I don't know if he even mm-hmm. has a word of dialogue in this movie. He's in it. Uh, but uh, he, he was has like, one line of dialogue, which is, sorry. Right. But he was flown <laughs> from, like, L.A. to Toronto, where they were shooting. So, which would be really unusual to do for an actor with that small a part. It's the kind of stuff where, like, gee, I think Brian Singer just liked this guy, liked him, and uh, wanted to, you know, have him around and, like, do this stuff to kind of curry favor with him. There was... the I have to, I've got to find this in the Wikipedia article. There was a quote from... Uh, I think it was a Hollywood reporter talking about the production mm-hmm. and said... Um, oh, now i got to find it. Something about how these production meetings were, quote, unprofessional, even by uh, eccentric auteur standards. Right. Like... So think about what that means for a second. Like, when I hear eccentric auteur behavior, I think, like, Stanley Kubrick making um, poor Shelley Duvall do 143 takes or something in The Shining. This yeah. has got to be... So, this, in fact, this is where we we mentioned Kevin Feige got his start working on this movie. His job was basically to babysit Brian Singer and make sure this shit didn't go off the rails. Yeah. So... 
other other weird things that happened in the movie in terms of like setbacks. Not only did it go through a million rewrites, the the final. Um, even the last script is so David Hayter gets the credit on the script, but there's a debate over how much of it really belongs to Chris McQuarrie, who was um, Brian Singer's writing partner on Unusual Suspects, uh, and some uh, some other folks. Um, David Hayter, oddly enough, best known as a voice actor for uh, if you're a video game player, he is Snake from the Metal Gear Solid series. Um, so there, and the other last thing I, I want to point out in the production are two things. One, the movie was bumped back, or I'm sorry, bumped up six months. So they had to produce this movie or get this movie out into theaters way earlier than they expected to, and they were already behind right. the eight ball, which caused all sorts of headaches. Because I guess something about uh, Steven Spielberg, um, they were expecting to have either I think they were expecting to have Minority Report to fill this slot in the summer, and he ended up shooting he was working on ai at the same time he ended up shooting that which meant minority report wasn't going to be done and that meant they had a hole in the schedule to fill so they said let's put x-men right. in that slot hey brian get cracking adding to the stress and then the last thing is as you already mentioned doug ray scott was cast as wolverine and uh had to leave the role three weeks into shooting at which point they went with uh they, they got hugh jackman because they had wanted uh, Russell Crowe at one point, and Russell Crowe said, hey, right. I know this other Australian guy. Use him. So despite all of this stuff, we got a movie. Yeah. And uh, if I'm not entirely mistaken, this might be uh, a headcanon or uh, urban legend, but uh, DuGray Scott had to drop out because of injuries from Mission Impossible 2. Yes. Correct. Um, Not only did he which, have shooting conflicts with Mission Impossible 2, he also got injured on the set of that movie. So he was not going to yeah. be Wolverine. Right, yeah. And, you know, but I mean, you know, look at what Mission Impossible 2 did for his career. Uh, that, you know, he uh, he, he would have missed out on otherwise. That, that amazing cinematic masterpiece. Um, <laughs> speaking of Christopher McQuarrie, now writing and directing, like... All of the Mission Impossibles <laughs> moving forward, it looks like. Yeah. Um, so, you know, untethering himself from uh, from Brian Singer uh, seems to have worked out well enough uh, for him in, in that regard. Um, yeah. We've talked a little bit about, I think for the most part, with a few exceptions, I think the casting of this movie is a, a large part of the success here because for... Yeah. With with a few exceptions, we'll talk about. Uh, I think that they just hit it out of the park on almost every one of them. Um, Patrick Stewart as Professor X. I mean, I don't know that there's any other human on Earth qualified to play that character. You know, I mean, you I spent, mean, if it, it had oh, been yeah, someone else, one hundred percent. I would say if it had been someone I mean, else, James, James McAvoy, but <laughs> but he's playing the young Professor X, so he gets a pass. No, for sure, for sure. You know, but but, but like, if, yeah, no, Patrick Stewart is perfect. Like that's just, and that's the anchor for it all. Like that, he gives it so much weight and gravitas behind these potentially silly or even surreal concepts uh, to a mainstream audience at the very least, you have 
a Shakespearean trained actor. You have a man who has stood on the bridge of the Enterprise, faced down the Borg and Q, and like so brings all that geek cred with him as well. And, and he's, he's basically just doing perfect. Picard. I mean, you put him in. Well, yeah. And you don't even have you don't have to put a bald cap on him. You don't have to shave his head or anything. It's he just comes naturally made for the part. He looks like he stepped right out of the comics. I mean, it's absolutely well, yeah. not stepped. That's not stepped, but um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's you know, it's he's uh, Xavier has been able to walk at certain points in the comics and in in the movies. Uh, it's not but he's a, so good. I mean. It, He's so good. He's the kind of thing, like, if you hadn't cast Patrick Stewart, you'd be spending the rest of eternity going, but why didn't you cast Patrick Stewart? No matter who, how good whoever else they got was, you would still be saying, yeah, man, but it should have been Patrick Stewart. But they got him. Like, it was the right man for the right yeah. part at the right time. Like, everything we just said about Angela Bassett playing Storm, that to the thousandth degree, if they hadn't gotten Patrick Stewart to play Charles Xavier. Yeah, there, there's there's no one else in my book to do that part. He's so good. And pairing him against Ian McKellen, uh, and those two, their chemistry on and off screen is so cute. And the greatest bromance of all time is born. <laughs> yeah. And Ian McKellen, for him, I mean, this was a, I don't want to say it was a star-making role for Ian McKellen, because he was still an established actor, but in terms of, like, being a household name, you know, between, right. the, like, the one-two punch of this in 2000 and then Fellowship of the Ring the next year... You know, that was it. He was cemented in pop culture forever. Um, and yeah. he does such a good job because he's such an unconventional... Um, to me, he's a more unconventional choice for Magneto. He's not like... You know, at least the way Magneto is drawn, he's a little more like muscular and like physically mm -hmm. intimidating. And like Ian McKellen is not physically... In fact, there's a, a, a big plot point of this movie is that, you know, he's, he's you know, kind of limited in his strength to a degree. Right, that this this is gonna this machine is gonna kill him <laughs> uh, if he uses it. Yeah, but like the the force of the performance is you know you believe that he is you know, um, and it's a delicate dance. We we hadn't touched on this, but the the big thing kind of underlying the the franchise is this racism angle that you know right. the X the mutants are a minority, and what are we gonna do? And you know, not an original observation that their points of view are. There's a little bit of like a Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X or even like a W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. Like this debate has been going on in this country um, forever. And these two guys are playing that out in a, in a comic book sandbox. But that the, the strength of that philosophical idea is what really carries the, the franchise and in particular these movies. Like that's the beating heart of the thing. And to have these two guys, right. you know, um, embody and that. That was, uh, that's, that's been there so early on. And I've, I've heard, you know, I actually, I got to hear uh, Stan Lee talk um, back when I was in college. He came here to, uh, to the University of Texas in Austin um, and gave this great, great talk about, you know, and, and he's such a wonderfully self-deprecating and self-aggrandizing storyteller. Um, but he took a bunch of questions from the audience, and one of the things that came up was asking him, like, so many people have noted about that parallel uh, of Xavier and Magneto with King and X. Um, and, you know, they asked him, he was like, was that there, you know, was that intentional? And Stan was just like, 
you know, so many of the other answers, he was just like, I mean, I don't remember that well back then. I mean, I can't even remember where my keys are these days, but I can't, uh, what, what the Hulk's name was. Versus, that's why I gave everyone alliterative names. Like so many of his stories were, you know, that befuddled grandfather persona that he kind of cultivated over the years. And, but with that one, he just stepped forward and he was like, hell yes, that was intentional from the start. Um, and it doesn't really come out in the earliest comics. I think they wanted to make it a very, in, in this particular case, literal good versus evil. Because in the comics, they call themselves the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Which the comics have had to like walk back a number of times and been like, Oh, it was intended ironically. Oh, Magneto was trying to play on the perception of evil mutants so that they can have more of that kind of political nuance. That works its way in as the book goes on and especially as, you know, you kind of move out of the Silver Age and into a little bit more of that kind of deeper, nuanced interpretation. You don't have to be as kind of like just baldly like, you know, oh, well, you know, the heroes are good and the villains are bad. It's like, you know, okay, well, the heroes can have some dark shades. Wolverine is a killer. Nightcrawler looks like a demon. The villains can have... Uh, interesting backstories and tragedy. That was around the time that Magneto had the uh, background as a Holocaust survivor uh, injected into his backstory. Uh, that was a fairly late development. Um, you know, he was a very mysterious and enigmatic character for the longest time. You know, like, didn't even know what he looked like under the helmet for a very long time, or even what his name was. And there's still a lot of debate about what his actual name is in the comics because they've gone back and retconned and re-retconned and been like, well, that's what it is in the movie, so we have to go back to that. Oh, but we said it was this, so now it's a... And from the very beginning, though, like you can just see those shades of that argument of and that very first issue of the comic that, you know, Xavier is training these kids and telling them and admittedly a an allegory about civil rights that uh, prominently features an all-white cast um in the comics of especially the uh the original class everyone's uh super white uh i mean you know you have people named uh, Henry McCoy and Warren Worthington III. Like, this is your civil rights metaphor that you can get away with in uh, mainstream comics at the time. All attending this, you know, very private, very uh, almost effete academy in upstate New York. You know, they're all wearing sweater vests and ties. And it's like, you know, okay, this is the civil rights. But like the, the underpinning of the argument is still there. And you hear Magneto as he's kind of, taking over this uh, military base that, you know, has these, you know, missiles and launch, you know, he stops a launch at uh, uh, Cape Citadel, not Cape Canaveral, Cape Citadel in the Marvel Universe. And his monologues, and this is something he's carried all the way through and why Ian McKellen is such a brilliant casting for him. Magneto is all about the monologue. And even in those early arch villain monologues, like, he's decrying what humans will do to mutants. That, you know, that they will eventually oppress and crush them. And so, 
you have to preemptively strike. You have to move in. And so it's not the most nuanced political discourse again, but the allegory, the underpinning of it is there. It's just kind of made very arch. Um, and over time, you start to get the shades in it. And then, the, But the movie does such a great job of just presenting the shades right up front. Like... He's got a point, kind of. <laughs> that's, yeah, and that's where I was coming down on it, is that, you know, he giving your primary antagonist a legitimate argument, you know, it, it makes it so much more interesting when you go, like, he's not, he's not crazy, he doesn't, you know, he's not Cobra Commander, and I'm going to blow up the ocean! Like, that's not what he's doing. Like, he has... You know, he has a very good reason for his worldview, and it's not crazy. Mm-hmm. It's not irrational. Um, and it was the first why, time, and now we're, we're yeah. kind of used to it, I think, especially in the, the MCU's uh, interpretations of villains. But at the time, going back to uh, what you were talking about, of what we had superhero film-wise before this, you know, this is a huge step away from... Nicholson's Joker or Hackman's Lex Luthor, like where it's just they're chewing scenery and they're, you know, like all about, you know, just it's it's goofy. It's very quality goofy, and you've got very talented actors playing these goofy takes on villains, but like there's not you know, like why are they do you know, okay, Nicholson's they Joker want power. was they driven want, mad yeah. after Luthor wanted real estate and is the greatest criminal mind, but, you know, not given a lot of backstory or motivation that, you know, other more modern interpretations of Lex have had. Um, this was a Magneto has a swing cause. and a departure. Yeah. Magneto yeah. has an actual cause with, with some real arguments behind it. Um, we should probably get into the recap because this stuff is going to bubble up as we go through it. Um, oh, but yeah, this, yeah. This, like I said, this this is going to underlie the entire movie, the franchise, both in the comics and in the films, and it makes it, it enriches everything it touches. It makes everything have more weight, and um, it just makes you invest more because it's yeah. it's you know it's not just whimsical fantasy. There is something going on here, um, and you can't just. Yeah, you can't just um, disregard the villains as like, well, they're terrorists and they're evil, so who cares? And that was one of the big elements I think as a kid that you know drew me in was that you know they really, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's become kind of a bit of a joke phrasing at this point, but they really kind of were the original social justice warriors. Like they had a got like you know everyone else in you know comics they you know like they fight for kind of abstract ideals of truth and justice or oh well you know I gotta go you know protect people from muggers or you know it's like oh that alien invasion is coming we gotta go fight that the X Men were really the first ones who had like a social cause that they were fighting for that it wasn't just about like punch ups with the bad guys. There was meaning and there was message behind Policy. all of the spectacle and all the colorful costumes. Right, exactly. And I just I was so much more engaged by that. And I think Marvel and and DC to some extent, some of the smaller press superheroes have really, you know, latched onto that that is something that appeals to people about and draws them back to the X-Men time and time again across different media with different creators this is something and so it's kind of become something that you start to give more and more heroes like 
there is a cause here. It's not just, well, I have power and therefore I'll go punch bank robbers. Like, no, you know, like Captain America stands for a higher ideal. You know, Spider-Man wants to protect life and defend people who can't defend themselves. You know, Batman from early on, but it's kind of become more and more, you know, it's the meme now, of course, of, uh, oh, it's a rich guy, you know, punching poor people and crazy people. And uh, it's like, you know, well, but he's also trying to, you know, protect the defenseless and save any other kid from going through what he went through. You know, and as you see more of that kind of sea change in comics that's then reflected eventually in other media, it really, a lot of it starts with X-Men. They pioneered that kind of higher heroes fighting for a higher cause. Right. It's it's the fact that you can't just have the the rule of cool isn't going to be enough. You need you need an idea, you know, right. to to anchor these characters. Um. So let's uh, let's start talking about how this thing opens because it's inter- it's quite an opening. Um. So we hear sure. uh, we start seeing these digital snowflake looking things. I'm not even sure what this is supposed to be, but we hear. Uh, Chromosomes the, or mitochondria or something. I guess. <laughs> yeah. We start hearing. Uh, we hear Patrick Stewart, and he says mutation is the key to evolution. Uh, and he is explaining um, just you know that uh, that evolution every every once in a while you know it's it's slow and uh, mutations happen slowly, but every once in a while there's a great leap forward, implying that that's what's happening here in this film. We're now at a point where um, where evolution is going. Uh, leaps and bounds over where it was before. And we get this CG, the score kicks in, we see a bunch of CG like sparkles and vertebrae, and it's like I, it's some lawnmower man-ass shit that I'm not even sure what it's supposed to be. Um, but we we see the door... <laughs> it's of, genetic coding. You're you're watching right. the genes like resequence and be activated by that. That's how I always interpreted it. I assume they're going for a genetics thing, but it's I'm re-watching it and I'm like going, I'm not even sure what this is look, supposed to look like. At one point it looks like you're kind of traveling down a, a spinal column, like, sort of, I guess, which is maybe yeah. is an allusion to Wolverine because you see a lot of his... Like x-rays and stuff. Uh, but anyway, we, we get past that. The door of Cerebro is used to uh, close um, as like a, a transition. And we go into one of the most crazy, amazing scenes in any movie. Uh, because this is yeah. so ballsy. Um, we cut to Auschwitz. Uh, the, the Nazi concentration camp to end all Nazi concentration camps. We see welcome to the, the movie, kids. Yeah, welcome, welcome to your popcorn movie. Um, let's go to let's go to a death camp, and it, we see the Arbeit macht frei uh, gate, famous uh, gate, which is one of the worst cosmic jokes in history. It says work that means work shall set you free, uh, which of course you you go in and you don't come out, um, right? And. Uh, you know, before we even get to what happens in this scene, the fact that we started here, I should say I'm Jewish. And so this resonated with me in a huge way. Uh, you know, the last time this location was really featured in a major film, and it was in the cultural zeitgeist, was Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. And now you can't obviously compare the two movies, but walking into a movie theater... And even knowing Magneto's backstory, that he was a Holocaust survivor, um, seeing it up on the screen, you're you're watching this scene play out, which is basically might as well be a scene from Schindler's List, that this boy 
Uh, I'm not sure how old he's supposed to be, but he's being separated from his mother like so many um, families were separated at the gates where, you know, this was a combination labor camp and death camp. And so generally, you know, the kids were going to go right away because they weren't useful as labor. There was no point in keeping them alive. Um, And so the Nazis are separating uh, uh, this young boy's mother. They're pulling him away from her. And suddenly he's, as they're all holding, he doesn't have any of his feet on the ground anymore. They're holding his legs in his arms and he's reaching for her and he's reaching for her. And they're now sliding in the mud with him towards the gate. He's pulling, he's pulling them forward and the gate is deforming and it deforms, you know, he basically rips this famous Arbate Mockfry gate up apart into an X sort of shape. Um... And we we fade from there to the next scene. Um, but uh, real quick, just yeah. uh, just to just just to talk about this one a little because I think I think it is worth lingering. I, I we got to camp out on this a little bit. To, yeah, yeah. We uh, it's it's it, it, I think it is important enough to linger on, and 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 you have rightfully kind of talked about uh, its importance and weight. Um, I think you know, like you and I, and a lot of fans going into it, you know, we know this aspect of Magneto's backstory, but you know, we, you know, make jokes about welcome kids. Um, but it is, again, it's one of those things that lends the movie so much great dramatic weight. Um, and it doesn't feel in lesser hands. It could have felt very manipulative or exploitative. It feels like this is, it grounds it immediately in our world. And I remember my, Weirdly enough, my first exposure to the Holocaust was Magneto in the comics. In that very issue that I referenced earlier, in Uncanny X-Men number 274, he a lot of it is his internal monologue. And a lot of it is him remembering his childhood uh, in the concentration camp. And him talking about uh, having to help dig the pits for the bodies. And having to, like, you know, watching family members be, you know, tumbled down and being caught up underneath them and being buried and then having to claw to preserve himself. And, like, and I had no frame of reference for this. I was, like, eight or nine years old at the time. I'd maybe heard, like, oblique references to the Holocaust growing up. Uh, But I didn't know the extent of it. So I didn't know this was a real thing. I'm reading a comic book. And I think this is, like, you know, oh, this is some kind of, you know, story like a Cree invasion or, you know, something like that. And the more I look into it, the more I find out about it. And so I wonder how many kids going to see this, you know, oh, fun superhero summer action film, then are first exposed to this. And are, or how many people who, you know, know about the Holocaust and were, you know, going in and immediately it keys into your brain. This is our history. This is what we do to each other this is what we have done to each other in our own past and it's a story that is set as we're about to see in the not too distant future this is the course of evolution and this is the kind of crux that x-men as a franchise as characters everything spins around this and everything about the movie that you know the patrick stewart monologue it's setting up that, you know, this is not just like, you're not just approaching it as a st- standard superhero film. This could just be 
a if this didn't have a comic book antecedent this could be just a sci-fi franchise this is about people who were born as the next stage of human evolution and we start in this point in our past this traumatic horrid travesty of our past and this is the scene that sets up our antagonist we're immediately sympathetic for him when we find out that he and and like i said you and i both know and fans going into it know this young man this child in this scene will grow up to be magneto the average movie going audience doesn't know it yet and i wonder what that experience would have been like for like a non-fan going in and just being like like what what is this the holocaust what is this? the not too distant future and then you know, even the first time we see him, even the first time we see Eric in the movie as a full-grown man, we still don't know that that was him. We get allusions to it in there, but like until we see later on the scene with the, the tattoo on his arm, we don't get the connection that, oh, this is that boy. And I just wonder, every time I watch it, I'm like, what is that moment of discovery like? For someone who doesn't know this character, who doesn't know this world, who's coming into it blind. Well, yeah, and as you said, the the, the strength of this character of, of Magneto as a villain is that he has a point, and you yeah. know, and, and this is what gives him to one. Yes, you know, immediately the audience is not going to just hate this guy as a villain, right? We have sympathy for him now because of what he's gone through. But also, it lends his worldview validity for him to be able to say, "Hey." I've seen what people do to minorities, you know, that they don't mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the, this isn't just some fantasy. I'm, I lived through it, you know, because I happen to be part of two minorities. I am, I am a Jewish person and I am a mutant. Um, and it, you, you immediately, like you said, you, it's like, if we're going to build this movie on the strength of this philosophical argument between Xavier and Magneto, um, this is like, basically filling the the fuel tank for that argument mm-hmm. at the top of the movie. Um, and so it brings you in. It's just, you know, it's emotionally gut-wrenching. But also, I got to say, as a Jew, it's a little bit of a power fantasy. It's like, like yeah, this, kid, this kid's sure. going to literally rip apart, you know, the, the gates of Auschwitz because he is, you know, you know we're not going to take it kind of stuff. And, uh, well, at some point, we'll hopefully get to X-Men First Class when they revisit this. And I think they do a great mm-hmm. job when they you know, kind of show you what happened after that scene. Um, right. You know, I, I love that stuff, too. But, yeah, the, kicking this off with this, it's just, um, it's really extraordinary. It, it really sets the table for everything else in the movie. Um, so he, we, we fade from uh, the, this muddy World War II uh, era scene to Meridian, Mississippi, and we meet uh, young Marie, who is uh, rogue, Played by Anna Paquin. She's, I guess, what, maybe 17, 18 in this scene. Something like that. And, yeah. she, and already an Oscar winner. <laughs> already an Oscar winner um, for the piano. Um, but she is there talking with her boyfriend about going on some kind of a cross-country uh, trip. Taking a little adventure. Um, they share their first kiss. At which point, uh, all these just... I like how they visualize this because, you know, you, they sort of explain – you see it in, like, the, the X-Men cartoon and stuff, but making this sort of viscerally unpleasant 
um, as mm-hmm. these veins kind of appear all over his face and he starts having a seizure. She starts freaking out, screaming. Her parents run in and she says, you know, don't touch me, don't touch me. Um, and we later on understand this is the first manifestation of her mutation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a powerful scene. I do find it a little odd that Rogue is cast as a character this young. And maybe that's because I was used to the cartoon where Rogue is like a contemporary of the other X-Men. She's not, you know, so much dramatically younger than the rest of them. So I found that a little off uh, here. Um, it doesn't hurt the movie. It's just sort of a, a, a change for the character. And again, that's probably a lot of this stuff from merging her with these other uh, you know, younger characters they wanted to have. It is definitely partially that. Um, it's also uh, when she was introduced in the comics, uh, well, when she was first introduced in the comics, uh, I want to say Avengers Annual number 10, which is where she steals... Uh, at the time, Miss Marvel, now Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers' powers, um, as are the first time that we meet her, and she's uh, a part of uh, Mystique's uh, newest variation on the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, uh, and she's presented as this. And you, you get the white stripes in the hair, and she's like drawn very villainously. Um, but the next time that we see her, when she pops up in X-Men and like actually comes to them for help, kind of she's got another woman's voice in her head and she can't get rid of these powers and she like can't control. And she's turned away from her own foster mothers in Mystique and Destiny and is turning to her mother's sworn enemies and saying, please help me. Um, she's drawn much more. And we see her for the first time as... Uh, she's intended as kind of basically as this age, she's a like late high late adolescent, um, like maybe 18, 19 years old at that point. I don't know if we're ever specifically told that. Um, but you know, Kitty and Jubilee, when we first meet them in the comics are like 13, 14. So she's rogues actually much closer to the age she's introduced at in the comics here than, uh, even uh, Kitty and Jubilee as the kind of go-to Wolverine's adopted daughters. But there's even moments when she first joins the X-Men. Um, Wolverine's really, you know, none of them trust her, of course, because of her backstory as a villain when she first joins them. But Wolverine is kind of the first one to accept her after she almost dies. Uh, saving an interesting, like, inversion of uh, what we wind up seeing uh, here uh, at the end of the film. To, you know, spoiler alert, jumping ahead. Um, so I found it very interesting as a comic fan that like, I think people who know the cartoon and maybe know more modern runs of comics kind of see... It is like, you know, oh, she's just Jubilee in this, or she's just the Kitty Pride of this story. But actually, there is some element of this in the source material. And she is pretty close to this age when we meet her for the first time in the comics. She is a much younger uh, female. And then it's, you know, of course, over time, she becomes much more kind of, you know, bombastic and flirtatious and, you know, gets the longer hair and becomes much more 
of the flirty Southern belle that uh, I think cartoon fans uh, were introduced to her as. But this is much, much closer to who she was when we first met her in the comics as well. Yeah, and they said they wanted to put Rogue in the movie because her particular mutation that she can't even touch another human being, the, the fact that she's so alienated and she is... Um, well, she's not totally our point of view character. Wolverine is also our point of view character to a degree, but you know, she really highlights that aspect of it. That you know, for some of these mutants, their mutation is is a curse as much as it is a blessing. Uh, like Wolverine yeah. doesn't have this problem, right? But like some of the others, you know, Mystique um, and Beast, for example, talked about their their unusual appearance, Nightcrawler. Um, Cyclops, as we see in this movie, you know there there are huge drawbacks to some of these mutations, and for, especially for her, um, that's a big one. You know, to never really ever be able to have any skin to skin contact with any other person because you'll literally kill them is um, that right. is incredibly isolating. And so. as you know, I've I've said in every other episode so far, you know, in superhero fiction, the metaphorical becomes the literal. And she is the embodiment of that isolation. It's not even just, um, I've heard people even, uh, you know, I think she was created before, I, I, I may be speaking incorrectly here as far as timelines go, but I think she was created before it. But a lot of uh, friends have told me they've uh, seen her as very much a metaphor of uh, like the AIDS epidemic. Um like that fact that, you know, she can't have that skin to skin contact or risk killing somebody that like she was almost adopted um, by uh, survivors um, and people who, you know, like have lived with HIV and AIDS um, and members of the and I mean, X-Men as a whole has been, you know, so even before, you know, Singer came on board, you know, so embraced. Um, in my experience and other talking to other geeks by uh, the uh, at the time uh, what we would have said you know is uh, the gay community now you know LGBT or you know queer community um, really embrace these characters because you know it's not just a racial metaphor it's a metaphor for all oppressed minorities right anyone who's you know uh, not is, is to some degree on the outside looking in when it comes to yeah, our, and uh, Grant Morrison kind of famously coined during his run on the book, uh, you know, in his cheeky Scottish style, uh, that you know, in in, in my opinion, uh, all mutants are inherently bisexual, um, and you know, which is just a wonderfully Grant Morrison thing to <laughs> say. Um, I, I don't know how canon that is, but. Uh, <laughs> Probably not. It, it always makes me chuckle and seems very, um, very in keeping with, uh, um, and certain Claremont books, there's certainly evidence for um, <laughs> this argument to be made. Right. Uh, so we go from this scene of uh, Rogue freaking out to uh, Famke Johnson uh, playing Jean Grey. I think this is her best role. Um, previously known for playing Bond villainess Xenia on a top. Who would uh, kill you by uh, sh- cracking your neck with her thighs? That was her shtick. Um, but here she is uh, explaining how, uh, how mutations generally appear around puberty. They 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 are brought on by periods of intense emotion that seems to make them express themselves. 
Um, and sitting in the audience here, what I presume is the UN. I'm not really clear exactly where this is. Um, she's speaking I to think a it's dig- supposed to be the Senate or U.S. Congress, I think, is supposed to be the... Yeah, I wasn't sure if this was a world... That's why I thought maybe it was like world leaders that it was at the at the U.N., but regardless, she's a, a U.S. senator is there. We meet uh, Senator Kelly, again, played by Bruce Davison, um, as in just an odious piece of shit, um, <laughs> asking her if uh, mutants are dangerous. Um, they, there's a question about, you know, well, you don't need a license to, to live... Um, and we understand now that the, the political th- football that's a, a going on in this movie is this discussion of this Mutant Registration Act that will require all mutants to be uh, registered with the government. Um, I do think there's a little bit of a misfire here in making Kelly such a piece of shit. Now, they do that because we don't, you know, we want to sort of, we know he's, he's going to die later and we're going to want to not feel too bad when that happens. But I do think that part of the problem is you know, as we said, giving the villains a point is important. Um, and so to some of the time, he's making points that are rational. Um, but because they're coming out of his mouth and the way he talks about them, it undercuts that. So, like, the the argument he makes it, later on in the movie, he gives, like, an analogy to gun control. And he says, well, you know, these pe- you know, people are ten times more powerful than a gun. And we understand he's just, he just fucking hates mutants. He's just a bigot. And that's all he really is. But, you know, if your neighbor was a walking nuclear bomb, I understand why you would be concerned. That's the gun control debate is, you know, like, yeah, you know, I understand, you know, some you might think you could be responsible with an AK-47, but some shit is just too dangerous for even responsible people to have. And you still got to get a license and you still got to take a class to you know, qualify to own this thing. So... You know when it, when you're when a human being is the gun, how do you deal with that? Like th- some of these folks really are very dangerous, and so I do think making uh, making Kelly the mouthpiece for that stuff sort of make it makes you disregard those arguments. Where I think it actually might be worth engaging in those arguments a little bit more. So, um, which is not to say that uh, think- Davison is a bad actor because he's not. He's excellent at playing this. Smarmy no, magic. I think that, and I think for having a character like uh, Senator Kelly, who's been, who has been the kind of mouthpiece for that. I mean, he existed in the comics for the longest time. I think his first appearance was actually, um, and this always makes me chuckle watching uh, the movie, and then of course watching the later movie. But he is the target of assassination in the original Days of Future Past comic book arc. They're like Mystique, it's Mystique killing Senator Kelly. Uh, that brings about the dystopian timeline that then the older Kitty Pride has to come back. We'll talk more about this story, I'm sure, when we cover that movie. But yeah. um, he's, but I mean, like, of course, they don't succeed in that story and they're able to stop that timeline uh, from coming about and save Kelly's life. But he kind of remains in the um, in the books as this and eventually kind of has this conversion after the x-men save his lives for the like you know 500th time he's like you know maybe mutants aren't so bad and then winds up getting assassinated uh that's that's of course then when he dies uh unintentional uh uh bedside reversion uh or conversion i mean um but i think you need to get a an actor like bruce davison to play this uh because he's such a good actor and because he does have there's 
an inherently likable quality about him, like, just as a person. So when you're writing, like, such a shitty kind of character, and you're like, and it's like, oh, man, this guy is a bigot. Like, why would anybody even vote for him? And then you cast Bruce Davison, and you're kind of like, oh, okay, because the same reason anyone votes for a shitty politician, because someone (laughs) fucking sold the line. Hi, I'm from Texas. Hi hi there, Senator Cruz. How are you doing? Go uh, fuck with Big Bird some more. Um, (laughs) if we're going to get political, let's get political. Um, but yeah, I mean, some real pieces of shit have gotten elected to office over the years selling lines like this. It does not appear to, I think, you know, and there are, you know, there's validity to the argument. And I think he and Jean kind of have the, the crux of that element of the debate here. She, and she makes it very clear, you know, we can't license people to live. And if you start registering human beings like you know where where does, where that, does that road then, lead? of course and... but then like public safety is an issue though public safety is a concern and if you have people who are you know sometimes uh you know somebody's if someone goes out in public they gotta wear a mask uh you know like not to right if you're capable of leveling it, but... a city block we we want you to not do that <laughs> you know right um, exactly but it, but yeah, he gives this line. He says, you know, we must know who they are and what they can do. And that gets a big round of applause, at which point, you know, Xavier has been watching this. And we see someone shadowy, who we'll find out in a second is Magneto, get up and walk out of the room. Yeah. Uh, and so we now have this great, again, another great kind of setting the table scene uh, of, you know, uh, Xavier and um, who he first identifies as Eric Lenscher. Um, you know, uh, debating in front of a bunch of exes, of course, mm-hmm. um, that giving basically stating their beliefs, which is you know, Xavier, you know, is basically saying, "Hey, mankind has evolved since the days of World War II. You got to give them a chance. We're gonna, you know, we, we need to learn how to live together amongst one another." And Xavier basically says, "You know, don't get don't get in my way." You know, are you sneaking around in my head, um, letting us know that Charles can read minds? And he yeah. says, you know, we are the future, what not are you looking them. For? They I'm no looking longer for matter. Hope. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He says, yeah, we are the future, not them. They no longer matter. Um, uh, you know, yeah. his his point of view is your 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 policy of appeasement, you know, to, which is how he sees it. This is the policy of appeasement towards towards Hitler. So it's like, no, man. They're going to come and kill us eventually. So we can either, you know, get a jump on defending ourselves or we can wait until we're, you know, on the back foot. Um, but, you know, your peace-loving ways are ultimately going to fail. And then we got to fight. Uh, yeah. And then Xavier right there from the beginning is saying, you know, it's like he gives the essence of his character. His kind of his whole mission statement right there. I'm looking for hope. That's been for you know the longest time just like the the essence of xavier across so many interpretations you know the 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 current uh run of x-men is uh exploring a different side of xavier i would say but you know at the essence for the longest time he is an idealist he is a dreamer he talks about the dream that is the essence of you know what the x-men are fighting for this dream of peaceful coexistence he is the dreamer. He is the hoper. And like right at the beginning, you have Eric set up as the brutal pragmatist. He's been through this before. He won't go through it again. 
and he'll fight them as he says later on in a very blatant allusion to Malcolm X that he will do it by any means necessary. And then you have Xavier who has, he could shut Eric down right now. Eric doesn't have the helmet on in this scene. Right. Eric, he, he can read turn off his thoughts. Brain. He could shut off his brain, but he's looking for hope. Not only in the humans, he's looking for hope in his old friend. Right. And their he friendship. wants him. You know, what, what a great anchor that is that you, they never, it's like, uh, it's a little bit like, you know, Luke never giving up on Darth Vader. You know, it's just like, you know, he's. Exactly. Um, there's, you know, he knows this guy. And I, I, again, to keep some praise on first class, like they do a good job of establishing their friendship. That, you know, they there's this mutual oh, yeah. respect. Then that for all of um, uh, Magneto's scheming throughout these movies, he never really mounts like a full scale assault to like kill Xavier, which you think he would do if he really was a true believer in his cause. Like he, he's going to have to ultimately stop Charles and the X Men for good, uh, but he doesn't. Like we, as we see, he has a plan to disable him temporarily. But yeah. yeah, he never, I mean, he could just, you know, bring the building down on him. You know, he ain't bulletproof yeah. and this guy or can even, move you metal. Know, later on, what you're talking about, disabling him, you know, Mystique has infiltrated the, the school at that point. You know, just like, hey, sneak into the school and bang, put a bullet in his brain. Like, he right. won't, clearly if, if she's able to infiltrate the school well enough that he can't detect her in that way, she could just take him out easy as you please. As we'll come to find out, uh, you know, she and Xavier, they're not considering the, that at this point, I understand. But, you know, she and Xavier have their own, you know, history and bond in this, you know, universe or this timeline. If it even is the same timeline, because, oh my God, that'll give you a headache trying to make that work. But Yeah, I don't think we'll try. <laughs> the continuity yeah. on these is are a little <laughs> fucked. Um, but that's okay. Um, but yeah, I, I think, again, this is a, a great set up here we're we're putting everything we need down to you know at the top of this movie between this scene you know kind of and the holocaust scene kind of like past and present like you know we, we understand exactly what's at stake for the mm -hmm. the mutants as a class of people politically and it gives us everything we need going forward um and another slight example of uh, ways that they uh, kind of combine characters here because she she is dr jean gray in this film. Um, and she is certainly not a doctor uh, in any of the comics or any other media. She really is kind of an amalgamation here of uh, Jean from the comics, but also uh, elements of uh, Moira McTaggart. Well, some, some beast, but also uh, Moira McTaggart uh, from the comics, uh, who is a, is a geneticist in the comics and is a, a contemporary and a peer and former love interest of Xavier uh, not the uh, badass FBI agent slash amateur archaeologist that we come to meet later on in the first class films. Um, but, but she does uh, appear in this frame. I believe she appears in, in X2 and, and X3. She appears in, in the very last. She has a very small role in uh, The Last Stand, um, which at that point, uh, Gene has kind of it's almost like Jean dies and all of the Moira goes off and becomes Olivia Williams um mm -hmm. and uh who only gets like two scenes in that movie uh trying to you know stop, who is an amazing actor and would have actually been a really good Moira uh if the franchise had moved forward from that 
uh, horrible, horrible movie. Um, but yeah, it's just, I remember watching this in the theater and being like, Dr. Jean Grey and kind of hearing our arguments. And I was like, oh, they took some like Moira stuff and put it into her, like, you know, to, you know, kind of, you know, beef her up a little bit. So she's not just like, you know, the, I think so often uh, in these movies, I think especially at that time, it would have been uh, easy enough just to make her uh, the contention, uh, <laughs> the love interest in contention between uh, Cyclops and Wolverine. Um, she's just the girlfriend. And, you know, kind of like, you know, okay, let's give her, because she's still in this very kind of timid place with her power. Uh, so she's not going to be the powerhouse psychic that she will eventually become. Um, let's give her more of this, uh, you know, making the argument for mutant rights and having this uh, intellectual background uh, and power uh, on display. Even if it's only on display in a couple of scenes, it gives her a little more depth and a little more to do in the story rather than just be the love interest, which I really appreciated because I love Jean Grey. I think she's one of the best characters ever in comics. Like I adore her. I think she's such a badass. Uh, I don't disagree. Um, I, I think she's well rendered here. And I, I think, yeah. Co- and I think co-opting bits, I, I read that they explicitly had things that they wanted beast to do in one of these drafts. Sure. And they said, well, we'll just have, we can condense this by having Jean Grey kind of do those things. And it, it works. Um, it works. And, and like you said, this character is so much more than... She could be just one point on a love triangle. Um, and she is, but she's more than that. And it, it makes everything work. Um, uh, so we get, cut back to Rogue. She's hitchhiking. Uh, I believe, the, uh, just a cute call out, the, the truck driver who is taking her mm-hmm. is a... Uh, he was actually Beast's voice actor from the 90s cartoon. Which is kind of George uh, Booza, yeah, yeah. Uh, so she dropped great voice actor, right? She says, "I thought you were taking me to Laughlin City," and he says, "That's where I took you. This is Laughlin City. This is Laughlin City." But he drops her up at, at uh, what is some sort of a fight club, um, and we <laughs> and we meet Wolverine, who is in the cage in the fight club, and the guy gets the the other guy gets the warning. Just whatever you do, don't uh, don't hit him in the balls. Uh, and we see them fight, and Wolverine, of course, kicks this guy's ass. Um, but notably, when he is, Wolverine is punching him, we hear metal-type sounds whenever he strikes with yeah. his fists. Um, we, the fight is over. Rogue is you know, sitting at the bar ordering water and having uh, one eye very clearly on the tip jar, uh, which the bartender notices. Uh, Wolverine comes up. He orders a beer and a cigar. And as he's doing that, we hear... Um, the movie kind of drop in an important plot point that Ellis Island is going to host this summit of world leaders. And of course, whenever a movie says a group of world leaders are getting together in a place, we know that's going to be trouble at the climax of the movie. And it's a good thing that this, you know, news report in this bar has, you know, such an important bit of plot information, right? <laughs> this yeah. moment. Good to let us um, know. And is playing alongside. I, I do have to call out real quickly, just because I'm such a fan of hers. Uh, Lucinda Williams playing in the background in this scene. 
Um, if, if you are not familiar out there, gentle listener, go, go find yourself some Lucinda Williams to listen to because she's an amazing singer songwriter. Uh, again, no argument for me on that. Um, so, <laughs> uh, the tough from earlier comes in, he's pissed at Wolverine. He feels that he was, uh, um, that this was a hustle, which he's right. Uh, the Wolverine, uh, Wolverine did hustle him, um, because, you know, he has mutant powers, uh, that the other guy does not. Um, this guy pulls a knife on Wolverine. Wolverine effectively pulls his knives on him with our first snicked as the blades come out from between his fingers, which is a nice, this is an interesting, I remember this being kind of a controversial thing of like, well, they're not coming out from like on top of his hand they're coming out from between his knuckles um i it's always kind of been a point of artistic interpretation i feel like uh as to where exactly the claws come out um because like it's and they're like the way some artists draw it there are um like these little kind of housings in the back of his hand that pop up and then let the claws shoot out and there's some Mm -hmm. that like it comes out straight through the knuckles and some that are like, Oh no, those housing are only exist like in his gloves and you know, Oh, they're razor sharp on both sides. No, one side is blunt edged. One side is, uh, you know, but which side is which it's always just kind of been, and you know, in comics you get away with a little more of that kind of license of like, well, you know, each artist is going to draw it differently and whatever the needs of the story are kind of dictate, uh, what, these will look like and what they can do in the moment in a film you have a little more of that need for verisimilitude um you need that kind of ground in reality where it's like okay what is the actual physical reality what does it look like for a guy who has you know claws in his arm to then extend or retract that and like having the actual like skin like from that pov shot having the skin open up as the blade is coming through and like slow that last third middle blade is just slowly extending towards the guy is again, it's one of those like little touches and every point, both big and small, this movie, especially in the first two acts really goes out of its way to ground this in a reality in a recognizable reality outside your window. This is, you know, your world just, two years from now kind of thing. Um, and it's just such a cool, cause it, it's the easiest thing. It could just be, it's like, Oh, the metal thing is coming out and we've, we will see in later movies what bad claw effects look like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this is like so impressive to me and the way that it, the shot is framed and like that he, of him looking up over the knuckles and it's almost like a horror movie. It's almost like Freddy's coming at you with those claws it's like you see the savagery and like the animal nature in this guy as that last claw is coming out. It's, I don't know. It's such a statement shot for me. Like, I love it. It also really sets up that point later that he makes about, you know, it hurts when they come out. Mm-hmm. That looks like it hurts. You know, the, um, yeah. You know, it really, uh, it, it sells that aspect of the character. And I think, I'm sure there must have been, um, you know, tests where they said, well, let's see what this looks like if we make it look more like it does in the comics where they come out of the top of his hands. And it's one of those things that, like, yeah, it works in a drawing. Um, doesn't look right in front of a camera. You know, but this this definitely right. works. It worked for me. I thought it was great. Um, oh, agreed. Yeah. 
And so, uh, you know, the other guy, uh, the bartender pulls a gun. Wolverine cuts the gun to shreds with the claws. Um, but they decide not to let it. They see they don't want to get in something too violent in front of the kid. So they they kind of all sort of just stand down and uh, Wolverine walks off. Rogue follows him uh, into the snow. Uh, Ro- uh, Wolverine drives away, but he hears sounds coming from the back of this like trailer behind his RV that he's driving. Uh, he goes back. He finds Rogue in the bed of this thing. Um, and we have this scene of them now. He, he First, he just leaves her behind in the snow, but we you know he comes back and gets her. And we have this nice scene with the two of them in the cabin of this vehicle starting to get to know each other. And I, this is they, they have a neat dynamic. It, it's like kind of like a big brother, little sister mm-hmm. feeling to it. Like, it, you know, he... You know, he's, you know, the one, on the one hand, you have this older man, in fact, much older. Uh, much older, yeah. <laughs> uh, but he's, uh, you know, he could, he could exploit her. He could do things to her. Um, you know, he could abuse his, his, that power he has in some way. Um, he doesn't, without even knowing how deadly it would be for him to try. Um, and she eventually makes that known as well, saying like, you know, oh no, I would kill, I could kill you. Like, you know, be careful. I'm, you know, you can't touch me. Um, but I like this. This is sort of, you know, you get the save the cat moment from Wolverine. Um, and you kind of get, you know, her finally like finding a sort of big brother father figure in him. Yeah. And I think there's such an interesting moment to me. Uh, and I know I've, I've talked to other, uh, comics fans, um, before this point, uh, Rogue had never been named in the comics. She was only ever known as Rogue and everything. Like, um, just it was not a part of her backstory. It wasn't anything. Like, there had been a couple of moments, especially between her and uh, Gambit, where she almost told him her name. Uh, they would kind of tease at it. Um, and interesting, uh, at the very beginning of the character Wolverine was much the same um the the revelation of uh the Logan name uh didn't come until uh, a little bit later uh, at least a couple of years um so this notion of them and that's not his real name opening either. up and revealing <laughs> and kind of and having you know and there's a little you know kind of winking at the convention of having you know like silly code names or whatever of like you know like what kind of name is rogue what kind of name is wolverine um and then they tell each other their names and i think that moment really had even more impact for me because part of rogue being so guarded is her not telling people her name in the comics and that in this moment she did for the first time. Um, and it's so impactful that uh, in the comics, her name retroactively um, is Anna Marie. Like They took the character's name and the actor's name and kind of combined them. So her name canonically in the comics was then later revealed to be Anna Marie because of this moment and because of Anna Paquin's strength in this performance. Um which I, I thought was just, I, I thought was really sweet. No, and the fact that it was uh, Chris Claremont 
uh, who created the character who got to do that and kind of like as a love letter like you know it's like okay I like what you did with my character so I'm going to take and honor what you did for my character I'm now going to retroactively write it into her actual backstory and I really appreciated that yeah um, she points out he's not wearing a seatbelt <laughs> and immediately um, there's a crash into a tree that's down. Uh, he goes flying right out of the cabin in a, you know, in this almost cartoonish way, uh, like way out in front of the car. Um, he eventually kind of gets to his feet and we see the cut on his head just heal itself. This is our first kind of visual uh, sign of his, uh, his healing factor power. And, and really uh, seeing the metal for the I mean, like, we heard the metal and we saw the claws, but this is, like, you see underneath that wound, that skull is metal. Right, it's Terminator style. Um, exactly, yeah. Yeah, uh, we realize that she is trapped in the vehicle. Um, Wolverine sniffs something, he, he smells something is off, and uh, Sabretooth attacks, who is uh, played by Tyler Maine as... Just a big burly guy with uh, with monster vampire teeth. Um, yes. Uh, this is one of my bones to pick. Was I feel like the other than Mystique, and even she's sort of underserved, the Brotherhood apart from Magneto is a little, you know, like, eh, they're henchmen. Underwritten? <laughs> Underwritten, yeah. They're, you know, they don't do much. Yeah. Uh, especially Toad, but we'll get to him. Um, but so Sabretooth attacks... Um, the fire starts spreading in the car. Um, Sabretooth is knocked... Uh, I have my notes knocked out. I can't remember who gets knocked out. Oh, Wolverine gets knocked out. Um, oh, yeah. And then an enormous snowstorm appears, and Storm and Cyclops arrive to rescue Rogue, uh, at which point the RV blows up. Uh, and we don't get much about Storm. You know, if you're a comics fan, you know immediately who these two people are. Um but other than that, you know, we, we don't get a lot from them yet. Uh, we will get plenty, but um, we we get this rescue scene. Um, don't know if there's anything else to point out about it, but that's that's it's all plot kind of the plot the pacing in general in this thing. They just kind of move like plot to point to plot point pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of character building moments up to this point. This is the first real, other than the cage fight. This is the first moment of real action. In the like movie. comic booky action. Yeah, of like superhero, like, you know, full on. It's just like, and it's not about, you know, like, oh, showing up and, you know, being all quippy. It's like, you know, hey, here are my power. Like, I'm the, the burly guy with claws and I'm going to hit you uh, really hard. Other claw guy. And then what? Weather girl and I beam guy are here. And, you know, it's not I bet they're going to solve this problem for... with weather and I beams. I bet so. Yeah. And they do. <laughs> right. I think that's a lot of fun of the, this franchise in particular is you, you, all of these characters basically for the most part have just one power, um, you know, yeah. with, with a few exceptions, but it's always like, it's the, every crisis is a puzzle as to how we're going to solve this problem with the particular mutations that we have, you know, in the set at the moment. Um, uh, yeah. this one is, this one's just brute force. Um, but sometimes they get more complicated and I think that's where, where this stuff starts to shine. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, we cut to Toad, who is spray painting. Um, well, it's a little hard to figure out what this is the first time you see it, but it's a facsimile, or it's a replica of the uh, torch at the top of the Statue of Liberty. Um, Toad and is Toad play played by... 
Darth Maul. Ray Park. Yeah. Darth Maul himself, yes. Uh, so again, we're kind of loading this movie up with uh, some some geek cred uh, from other franchises <laughs> right off the bat. Yeah, no, mostly known for his work as a stuntman. And, and this is a very physical performance in that he is kind of, he's, he's a sort of very springy, um, whether he's on two feet or, or on uh, four, all fours. Um, but Sabretooth reports the failure to Magneto. He says, you know, Magneto... Um, sees the the Wolverine tag, the dog tag that Sabretooth managed to take. And this is that scene where you mentioned you see the Holocaust number um, tattooed on his arm. And yeah. um, he... Uh, also get one of my yeah. favorite visual Easter eggs in the whole movie of the uh, the cat's cradle on Magneto's desk with no actual cradle around it it's just the balls it's just yeah. the, it's just the balls and then like and then you know of course when he leaves then like the balls collapse and fall over and you know if you think about it for too long you're like wait so is he just sitting there kind of just, is this like his fidget spinner when he's you know the, there at his desk and like when he oh, I, comes I think in, exactly back in does he have to be like where did all where did all of my balls go i have to find these balls so that i can have my cats cradled again like Practically, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's so visually cool. <laughs> yeah, and again, it immediately reminds you, like, this guy has power over metal, and therefore it is the, the kid we saw in the opening. Uh, yeah. And uh, he says it is time to, to take something. It's time for a test. We don't know what that means yet, but it's time to test out something. Uh, we cut to what will later be revealed to be the bowels of the X-Mansion. Where Jean Grey is examining a uh, an unconscious Wolverine, she uses her telekinesis to get a hypodermic needle, and uh, he she puts that or is about to put it into Wolverine, who wakes up and almost murders her immediately. Uh, so this is the first time he's going to do this in the movie. Um, the second time is worse, <laughs> um, but he do, he does it. He just takes off running shirtless through the facility, and he. This really looks like the comics to me, like a shirtless Wolverine. He's um, kind of running around. Oh yeah, and he's he's quite here suit in this version, and it's interesting going and like looking at later versions of uh, Hugh Jackman's Logan when he's like you know clearly discovered creatine and body waxing and like mm-hmm. it's just like ripped and shiny. And then you're just kind of like, you know, but at the time when this came out, it was just like, like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's that's fuzzy, like, muscly, you know, Wolverine. And, you know, you go back and look at it now and it's like, like, who is that? Who's that small man who doesn't have the Logan muscles yet? (laughs) Yeah, he definitely beefed up a little bit for some of the later entries in the in the series. Um, And we start hearing uh, uh, Xavier's voice whispering in in his head. Uh, again, you know, immediately we know who that voice, you know, we'd recognize it anywhere. And it, it reminds us again, oh yeah, Xavier is a, uh, a telepath. That's his, um, that's his ability. And he is subtly yeah. de- kind of corralling Logan where he wants him to go by whis- And they're just very simple, like, you know, over here, you know, in little whispers. And, uh, so he's, oh, he's making oh, his oh, way oh, through the school. He's gra- he grabs a hoodie. Uh, at one point, he kind of looks at the X-Men costumes that they'll later wear. He sees those in the closet. Um, and he goes up, he takes up an elevator out of this, what has been this purely sci-fi metal hall set of hallways into an ornate 
mansion that quickly realizes a school because a bunch of kids go running by. And, you know, if you're not a fan of the comics, this you, know, you would be as disoriented as he is. Uh, and a door opens to an office where Xavier is sitting there with a group of kids. Uh, he dismisses the class, which includes uh, Iceman and uh, Kitty Pride, who had been referenced earlier by uh, Senator Kelly as like, I heard there's a kid who can run through walls. And here we see her do just that. Uh, later to be replaced by uh, then Ellen, now Elliot Page. Yes, well, replaced a couple of times because there's another. She's played by another actor in uh, in X two, who then when uh, uh, Striker's forces are you know raiding the mansion, uh, like you see her take a breath and like phase down through her bed uh, down into the floor below, and it's a totally different actor from both uh, who played her in this one and um, uh, Elliot Page, of course, in uh, The Last Stand, who was such. Great casting. There's so much good casting in such a bad movie in there. I will get to that. I know, but yeah, I, just, I you know, I, I'm, I'm he, looking. He was actually, such a good casting choice for Kitty. I'm looking forward to covering it because I, I, I think there's a lot of fun to be had in, in these movies when they're not so good. Um, oh, for too. sure. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and we'll, there are we'll elements of that movie that, like the casting, yeah, I think you know, there's there are things to be enjoyed. It's just like the ingredients don't come together the right way in that uh, movie for me. But anyway, again, yeah, we will we'll definitely. Get yes. to that. But yeah, Kitty is, I think, the most recap. Actually, I think Kitty and Jubilee, I think, uh, are tied for most actors playing them <laughs> in the franchise, especially for how little screen time those two characters actually wind up getting. Um, I just, I, it, it, it tickles me to no end. Um, but yes, uh, uh, Sean Ashmore making his first uh, appearance. As as Bobby as Iceman, one of my favorites uh, for the longest time. Um, and and again, another change yeah. to have him be so young here, um, because in the comics, I know he was one of the original X Men. Yeah, you know, but so. also he was also the by quite a bit. He was the youngest of the original class. So and then when the like kind of second wave X Men came in, they were you know they kind of abandoned some of the like student concept of the book at that point because um, they were all full grown adults. I mean I think Colossus was probably the youngest of that generation. Certainly didn't look it because you know he was a seven foot Russian beefcake. Even at, I think he was supposed to be nineteen or twenty at that point. Um, so you know Bobby was definitely you know. Young, even compared to these new X-Men who came in. And then, of course, Kitty comes in and they wind up introducing the new mutants in the comics. And, you know, it'd be, you find room for that, you know, kind of student body concept uh, returning to it. Because uh, one of the cool things I think the movie does here, you know, kind of jumping ahead just a little bit, is making the school like an actual school. In the comics, it's much more kind of, I mean, it's certainly... It's, it's a training center and it's, um, you know, they are pursuing studies of a kind, but it's always this very small group. It's always the X-Men. This is where they train and the school is kind of a cover for that. And here it's much more the school is the primary function. And here is where mutants can come and find refuge and not only study the use of their powers, but study academically as well. And it just yeah, so happens that the faculty 
also happen to moonlight as uh, as superheroes. Yeah, and so I like the that. X-Men sort of uh, becomes, it, it's almost an ancillary function. The school is the actual part. And to the point that like the comics then said, oh my God, that's so obvious. Why are we not doing that? And then with the Grant Morrison's run, it really kind of opened up to, it's like, you know, hey, any mutant kids out there who need a safe place, who need a place to come train, the school is open. This is the purpose of the school. But you that are going to learn trick. The, yeah, you know, gifted. Well, gifted youngsters was a a euphemism for the longest time, and the notion that you know, like nobody except the bad guys knew that this was actually where the X Men were headquartered because the school got blown up constantly in the comics. Like it just became a running joke. That and how often they all died and came back. Um, which I guess only really happens here like two or three times in the movies. Um, right. But uh, but yeah, I love it so much. And it gives you room for so many Easter eggs of the number of just kind of like random background extras. But if you like look at the call sheet and see, oh, this character was actually named this. Oh, that's an Easter egg. Oh, that's Sunspot from the New Mutants. Oh man, that's that's supposed to be Colossus painting in that scene. Like it just really enriches the world it's not just oh hey this is our fancy mansion that we hang out in it's no this is this serves a practical function and like the fact that it's a school you know this is you know it's hogwarts before hogwarts like this is you know especially you know what like bobby says welcome to mutant high like i want to see like a movie that's just about mutant high i want to see a tv series that's just like teen mutant angst just like, you know, okay, yeah, superheroes are fine and everything, but... But Winter Formal's coming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, tryouts for the uh, the production of The Crucible. We gotta, we gotta do that, too. Um, oh God, I want this show so bad. Yeah. Um, so this begins kind of... We get a little bit of an exposition, uh, exposition dump here from, uh, from Xavier to Logan as he introduces... Reintroduces uh, Cyclops and Storm... Uh, lets him know kind of what's exactly what you're talking about, what's going on at the school, that this is for a place for kids to come, especially those who, like Rogue, can't really even function in normal society because their mutations are so extreme. He says the kids call it call them the X-Men after him. Um, we're also introduced to an important concept that um, Logan's memory really only goes back about 15 years. Uh, and yeah. he has, you know, no... Beyond that, we've, we'll, we'll eventually get little flashes of what we'll later find out was the procedure where they gave him his adamantium skeleton, uh, but not much else. He, and and a nice confident move on their part to drop this stuff into the movie about Wolverine's uh, origins without actually – basically they end up saving that stuff all for X2 and mm-hmm. – it's like you, you, they they introduced so much of it. I was very surprised the first time I saw this when they got to the end of the movie, and that was left as just like, yeah, that's all for a sequel. You know, we're not going to really answer anything. Yeah. And they really, break. I mean, like the the comics go even longer. It was the it was the longest time before anyone knew anything about Wolverine's origins. In the comics, um, even just going back as far as the Weapon X program and getting the adamantium bonded to his bones, 
amazing story by uh, Barry Windsor Smith um, that uh, just kind of shows you the, but it doesn't reveal it. It reveals it to the audience, but not to Logan himself in the comics. So he wouldn't find these things out until much later. And then it was really uh, when X-Men 2 came out. And it, first of all, with this one and, you know, them kind of revealing Rogue's name. And then when uh, X-Men 2 came out and they started like, you know, oh, well, here's his past with uh, the, the Weapon X program. The comics really looked at it and was like, oh, man, the movies are going to tell his origin before we ever get to it. Because, I mean, like, we were well into, you know, like, the 90s at this point. The character had been around for, you know, 25, almost 30 years at this point, And had, you know, like, little bits kind of hinted at about his past and, you know, past acquaintances. Some he remembered, some were fuzzy. And then they introduced the notion of memory implants that, like, oh, even the things he remembers might not actually have happened. And then the comics realized, like, oh, we can only go back to this well so many times before this much more popular medium tells his story before we get a chance to and that was what kind of prompted them to put out the uh origin miniseries that revealed uh about wolverine's childhood that then uh x-men origins wolverine kind of took and mangled and uh, uh again bad movies that we'll get to talk about later but um you know yeah it really was this in the second movie that prompted uh, Marvel to finally go and be like, oh, okay, here's here's everything. And then actually, like, you know, prompted them to be like, and uh, he, he's going to remember it all now. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, so all of the that kind of iconic mystery of the character was like, okay, cool. That's the first 30 years of his character. What happens if he actually finds out? Um, which we also get to explore in this franchise as well. Um, yeah. To certain degrees but yeah so i guess yeah as like a long-term fan it didn't like catch me off guard that like you know that he wouldn't find out by the end of this because it was such a long-standing part of his character for so long in the comics i was just kind of like that was my expectation was just like oh yeah yeah logan he's always in search of his past and that's just going to be kind of like a running little plot hook that we can hang things off of for you know the rest of the franchise um but yeah kind of uh, alluding to what I was saying before, like that you had that experience of, you know, discovery, even knowing, you know, cause the, the cartoon certainly played with that notion as well. Um, but that, you know, yeah, they make such a big deal out of it. And then, you know, you get to the end of the first movie and get no payoff on it at that point. Uh, I hadn't even thought about that kind of experience for like a non fan or like a, non-comics fan going into it and experiencing that for the first time like that's i hadn't considered that doug it's a it's a nice promise they make to the the audience (laughs) yeah um uh so we we hear xavier basically say look you know we we don't we want to find out why magneto is after you great misdirect for the first chunk of the movie Mm -hmm. that we think Magneto is interested in Wolverine because of his unusual metal skeleton. Because um, Magneto, don't you know, likes metal. And um, he says, you know, give me... F- Although we do get it- Xavier kind of hinting, it, even early on, of like, I'm not certain it's Logan he's after. Right. Um, which, you know, like, alludes to what we discover later on. But it's like, it's so 
deftly placed in with all of this other kind of information being parceled out that it just kind of you know flies over it's like yeah of course he wants wolverine wolverine's a badass wolverine has a medical skeleton whatever he wants he wants wolverine for because wolverine is obviously our main character wolverine 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 and it's like nope (laughs) right um and so it was give me 48 hours to to figure it out uh and and wolverine begrudgingly agrees uh we cut to senator kelly he gets on a helicopter um he's having a conversation with someone this is where he drops that thing about trying to compare mutants to gun registration um he says let the world deal with mutants in their own way i'd lock them all away it's a war you know he lets us know i am a bigot you know just puts it on front street um and we find out that Henry, uh, who is Henry Guyrich, who is a character from the comics, but in here he's just mm-hmm. basically a Secret Service agent named Henry, um, is really Mystique. Uh, she Mr. kicks him. She Guyrich has been dead for some time. She uh, kicks him, uh, kind of holds him in place with her foot, letting us know she's kind of a, a karate badass, and says, you know, people like you are the reason I was afraid to go to school as a child. And she kidnaps him to fly off to Comic Book Island, um, and <laughs> I, the 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 look on Mystique is this is incredible. Props to Rebecca Romaine for putting up with what had to have been the wor- one of the worst makeup experiences in film history. This was I read somewhere. Yeah. It took, it, I think they said yeah. nine hours every day of having to like be basically airbrushed and have. They actually revolutionized um, the uh, the kind of uh, prosthetics. Like they had to come up with like a whole new kind of like the the gel that they used for it or something to like mold it was like had to stick to her and had to hold the, the color so well that they basically invented a whole new kind just for this movie. And, and she's like, yeah. and that's not from the comics. In the comics, she wears like you know this like white gown and just has the blue skin and you know red hair. She also wears like a skull uh, on like her forehead, but you know that's neither here nor there. But yeah, this kind of like you know, oh well, she's a shapeshifter. Why would she even need to wear clothes? Right, she can just basically shapeshift facsimile clothes onto her. But like, yeah, she, um, you know, it's the same. She doesn't get more dialogue. You know, they they. Thankfully, mm-hmm. rectify that when they bring Jennifer Lawrence in to really flesh her out as a character uh, in the prequel stuff. But um, the I have to say that the transformation CG stuff on her holds up really well. I think those effects still look good. Yeah. And, it, it, and it also yeah. gives, I think, like, it's it, it's so interesting because we've seen at this point, you know, especially, you know, you referenced T2 earlier. So we've seen, like, shape-shifting film technology before. Um, and kind of the sort of standard like liquid metal or just kind of like the photo or that uh, the Michael Jackson black or, black or white video where it's like the morphing technology exists. This almost like gives the fact that it's like a textured that like the, the scales that they gave her to like cover up the PG-13 bits. Um, it really gives it like a practical reality that like, you know, the, the kind of like almost molting look to it that like these the scales kind of almost like peel back to reveal the new shape. Um, or like when she shifts in between things, I thought it was such a cool use of power. And like, it would have been so easy just to use an already existing form of this 
but to like you know really again kind of ground again that reality of like okay we give her these scales they serve a function they that's how she shifts that's the way that it physically manifests itself is just so wonderful and like you said yeah it holds up really well in most of the shots it reminds me a bit i don't know if they were specifically going for this but if you ever watch an uh, an octopus that kind of mm-hmm. changes the sh- the color and texture of its skin um that th- does look a lot like that and i think they you know again like you said sort of grounding it like well it's a genetic mutation it's not a magic power you know right. giving you just a little bit of science cred goes a long way um, yeah, it made me think of kind of like, uh, and I think this is maybe the quicker um, analogy is almost because uh, it, it feels very reptilian to me. So it brought to mind like uh, chameleons and iguanas and um, the way that like the scales will just kind of shift tone or, um, you know, that is the sort of, you know, more, more camouflage than disguise, I suppose. But, um, it definitely felt like, but yeah, I definitely see what you're saying there also with, uh, with the octopus and kind of marine life feel to it, that it feels biological. It, it, it feels like a physical thing that like, you know, Oh no, there is a, a thought process to how this power functions. It's a, kind of what you were referencing before with Rogue, too. That Like when she steals the power, for, uh, the life force from someone, you actually see it draining. It's, it's very vampiric. It's not just like, you know, it's like, oh, I'm getting paler. Or this nebulous light moves from your body into mine. It's this like, you know, this venous kind of manifestation. And like, and, and again, you know, also with the, the claws coming through the knuckles. Every point, they're like, you know, okay, they have a power. How does that power work in a real world setting? And I think that's one of the things that this movie and the second movie in particular, I think, do so magnificently well. Yeah. Uh, So Wolverine, uh, we cut back to him. He's apologizing to Jean. Uh, They have this sort of flirty, you know, you couldn't wait to get my shirt off again. She's, to her credit, she's not really buying into this. She never really does, you know, in the franchise that, you know, it's kind of clear this is more of a one-way crush in terms of Wolverine's feelings for her. She never really reciprocates it. Um, and they do it... I, they, I don't read it the same way. I've always thought, like, you know, uh, that there is clearly, like, a little, like, you know, especially in the second one, that there is... You know, there's there's chemistry there. There's attraction on her part. Like, she's not... I think she it's cares It's not like, for oh, him. I'm going to leave Scott for you the next minute. But she's kind of like, you know, it's like, oh, well... Yeah, uh, you know, I'll have my fun. I'll have, you know, like a little flirty. The fact that, you know, when he says that kind of line, the little like, you know, kind of aghast look that she gives him and then just sort of playfully, it's like, and into the machine you go. <laughs> so it feels very, it always feels very flirty and like there is definitely a connection there between them. I always, that's how I always read the moments is that, and in the comics, it's the same way that like yeah. there's legitimately attraction between them. It's like he appeals to something in her that, Scott doesn't, but also vice versa. Yeah, and, she clearly still. And I've always seen Scott. and like well, and we get into it a little bit in this one, and even more so in the second one. That like in my mind, and the comics get into this a little bit, is that I think Scott and Logan both see in each other a little bit of the kind of man that each of them would like to be, more like, um, and I think that drives a lot of the animosity between them. Of like, 
not only recognizing, you know, you're who I kind of want to be, but also there's a little bit too much of me in you for me to like. Um, and of course, you know, they've come to terms with that and become, you know, begrudging allies and even friends at points and, you know, certainly brothers in arms. Um, but, you know, I love their dynamic in this movie too. Um, that, you know, we'll, that we'll touch on uh, once we get to more of the scenes that they have together. Yeah, but I think they do a good job overall of establishing, you know, that she does actually love Scott. And that, yeah. it, you know, it's, and that he's not a bad guy. Like, it, they, you can make these love triangles fail when the competing, whether it's a, a competing female or a competing male, you make them into mm-hmm. such a, like, piece of shit where it's like, well, of course she's going to end up with our wonderful hero at the end because look at this stupid alternative. Um, but he's not. Like, yeah. he's a decent guy. Like, he's not, you know, he didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> you know, he's, he's just here, you know, this guy's horning in on his girlfriend. And, um, yeah. you know, th- you know they've, they've beer-swilling drifting. They've found an interesting <laughs> workaround to the kind of, because the, the triangle's been there for, you know, decades now. And, you know, and she's never strayed from scott um she's died on scott uh a few times and scott's died on her a couple of times um but i like in the comics scott starts having an affair with uh emma frost who will meet in first class a psychic affair at first and then gene dies on him again and they wind up kind of shacking up together in the aftermath uh with her sort of cut it's a whole thing with like the cosmic uh, alternate timelines and Gene ascending to the Phoenix. Anyway, um, but in the more recent comics, uh, with, where they're kind of exploring building a new mutant society together, um, Scott and Gene and Logan um, are in a little bit more of a, shall we say, modern uh, approach to a uh, a love trinity, perhaps more than a triangle, where. Um, and, and I, it's been alluded to that Emma may still be involved, um, in some ways as well. Um, and I was like, <laughs> anytime I see a love triangle now, uh, even before that kind of reveal in the current comics, I've always just kind of been like, you know, uh, you know, have, has anyone considered the, you know, possibility, especially in, you know, more modern times where, you know, younger generations are a little more open to these things like you know there are some easy workarounds to these you know love triangle situations that you know maybe if you know oh i'm attracted to them but i'm attracted to them too well sit down and have a conversation together for at the very least right <laughs> like, you know probably could have saved a lot of angst in these movies if scott and gina logan had just been like you know what we're in the next phase of human evolution maybe we need to be the next phase of human marriage as well <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'll leave the polyamory there for now. Um, so sure. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we, we not get... my thing, but I ain't going to judge anyone else no, whose no. it is. It's <laughs> consenting adults and all that. Uh, so exactly. again, we we hear about uh, we see the X-rays that there's adamantium on his skeleton. We we Xavier you know, says, "Hey, this mutation is probably allowed him to survive." We have no idea how old he is because of his healing factor. Um, he doesn't recall anything before the experiment that gave him that skeleton. And, and more, most importantly, Charles is not sure that he is the one that Magneto was after. We cut to uh, Magneto, who now has Kelly in his clutches. 
and he has this conversation with him, and he says, you know, are, are you a God-fearing man? I think God is a teacher. <laughs> what you're really afraid of is me and the brotherhood, blah, 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 blah. And he, he does his monologue. The brotherhood of non-evil mutants. <laughs> right. You know, we, you know, he does this monologuing, and basically he says, God works too slow. And he gets in a machine that he powers with these, like, rings, and this white light emanates from it, and it engulfs Kelly. Uh, and that's the end of that scene for now. We don't know what, ha- what happened to him. Yeah. Uh, this is the test that he was talking about before. Let's run a test. Uh, and that's it. But again, we get Magneto uh, monologuing and, and telling us the way he sees things, you know, and, and he sort of gives away half the plan. And he says, you know, when God moves too right. slow. Uh, we come back to um, Wolverine uh, being shown his room uh, by Jean. She asks, he asks if her superpower is being able to put up with Cyclops. And... <laughs> um, Cyclops, she reads his mind. She sees flashes of the Weapon X experiment. Scott comes in. He kind of tells him to back off. Uh, again, this is sort of this, you know, the, the stuff we've been talking about already of the triangle. And so I'm yeah. zipping ahead here to the more, more important thing, which is he's now sleeping. He's having nightmares about the Weapon X program. Rogue comes in to check on him. And for the second time, he wakes up out of, you know, into the screaming nightmare with his claws extended just stabbing. Um, oh, yeah. And he stabs Rogue right in the chest. Uh, which she then is able to deal with by stealing his healing factor by touching him for briefly. Uh, and she, and the entire school basically comes in and sees all this happening. Um, I like this because this is one of those scenes that does double duty as you know character building and exposition fairly seamlessly. Yeah. You know, we, we watch, you know, we understand now that her power is not just sucking someone's life force away, but it's, at least for a while, copying their mutation. Yes. Um, and the the effects work in this scene is, is so good. The, like, just the little protrusions of the ends of his claws out of her back, like, through the shoulder. Like, so you get a sense of exactly the, like, the anatomy of like this stabbing and then you see them those just those just the little points just retract when he pulls the blades out and you hear like that you know distinct i've been reading the word snicked in comic books for all my life and when i heard it on the big screen i was like that is what snicked sounds like and it's so Mm -hmm. just the sinking of it here the sink of the snicked um Back into the hands. And you see the points just retract out of the wound. But it also gives you that visual reference point on the back side. So that when the other students come in. And as she's taking his power and healing herself with it. And they all see those wounds close up. up and heal. It's that immediate visual shorthand that everyone like. No one needs what is happening explained to them. Everyone, both the audience and the student body rushing in, all see and know and understand what has happened. And so there's no more need for dialogue. And it's such great visual storytelling in this scene. And in a very emotionally charged scene as well. The performances both from uh, Paquin and Jackman in this scene is just like incredible. Like I legitimately, it's so tense to watch. 
even knowing what happens, even knowing they're acting, it's still every single time he stabs her, like I wince a little bit, and she's like, you, she's like choking and convulsing from the wound, and you're just like, oh my god, and he starts crying out for help. This man who's like, you know, just been like this totally cynical, detached, badass, like just quipping left and right, get out of my truck. What do they call you, wheels? And he just starts like hopelessly crying out for anybody. And it's just, it's such a great human vulnerable moment again between the two of them. Um, One of many more to come, Um, but it's, I love it so much. It's such a good scene. Yeah. And again, it sells that like, even within this, what is supposed to be the safe haven, uh, there's still Mm -hmm. room for that childhood or teenage experience of feeling like super embarrassed you know among your peers you know it's like she wants yeah. to, you know, it's like th- at this point you know now it starts setting and maybe i need to run away again you know and like to where you know like you're you know this is you know this is the haven that you could have you know that's it um yeah so we um we cut to uh one, one of the things you sort of see like Iceman. Uh, Bobby's kind of he's considering his life choices because we know he has a crush on her <laughs> and he's just seeing what's happened and he knows like oh you can see, almost see the calculation of like I can't ever like cop a feel or I'll die you know like that, that's what's happening in yeah. his teenage head um, girl before first date tells you oh by the way I have herpes but you really like her wow <laughs> yeah um we cut to Xavier kind of calming uh, Wolverine down and says, you know, he'll be all right. He explains in case you're in the audience and you didn't get it, how Rogue's power works. Um, you know, and she explains like she could have killed you despite your healing factor. She could have killed you. Uh, and now we get a really neat scene. We get to Kelly back in uh, Magneto's prison and he figures out that he can sort of squish his head through the bars and he makes his escape. He just decides to just go out through these bars. Um, and we get this cool scene of Magneto making a footbridge for himself out of metal. He'll do this several times in the yeah. franchise. It's always cool. He just sort of like pulls metal up and he just walks across it. And it's just so casual. It's not even like, uh, he's not like, make, like you know, I'm forcefully doing it. It's just like, as he's walking, before the foot hits, the tile rises up. And it's just like the most casual thing. Again, it's that the cat's cradle thing of just like, you know, yep, this is what I do. And I surround myself with, you know, metal stuff that I can use for these effects. And Yeah. It's seamless. He's very skilled at it. You just, it, it just you get the yeah. sense of like, this guy is, you know, very powerful to be able to just do this easily. He is, he is a Jedi master. Um, and exactly. He, yes. <laughs> yeah. He goes, uh, so he goes into the cell at first. He's trying to figure out where the hell Kelly is and how he could have gotten away. And he pokes his head out. He, I think this is this the point where he like moves the bars apart. And well, he, he moves out. the bars apart to come in and talk to Kelly and then, uh, kind of looks around and hears something outside and he pulls the uh the bar because there's the cell bars and then the bars like the window bars basically that Kelly passed through and he rips those out and kind of is leaning out this senator this is pointless and you know one of us now yeah what are you talking about yeah and uh yeah then just kind of like you know all right yeah Sabretooth uh get the guy and uh poor Poor, poor Tyler Maine. 
<laughs> he tries to, I love this, he tries to grab Kelly and, like, it's not for lack of trying. Like, Kelly is very, like, squishy and just yeah. slips right out of his hands and plunges into the water. Uh, and Magneto then punishes him by closing the bars behind him. And uh, I guess he gets a timeout. Yeah. He walks into it and you just hear that clank. And it's just... <laughs> it's, I mean, like, it works as a character moment, but just also is just a really good physical comedy beat. <laughs> yeah. Um, we get this cool scene of, like, Kelly kind of, like, appearing in the ocean. It's almost like that scene in Friday, at the end of Friday the 13th where Jason comes out of the water and attacks her in a canoe. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that. Um, and then he, he wanders out of the ocean and he's, like, pale and blobby. And he slowly regains his shape. It's almost, again, like he's like some sort of like gelatinous sea creature. Um, so, but he's yeah. naked he on the beach. Like, I, well, and you see the kind of visual illusion of like the kid kind of poking at the jellyfish on the shore right before he comes up. So like I always associate him like with, with a jellyfish in my mind. Um, that he's sort of taken on certain physical properties of that. Um you know, uh, and certainly the ways in which his powers uh, perhaps manifest later on are also visually uh, cued into that. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, good thing there are some stray clothes on this beach and some helpful news reports on this beach. About and uh, Stan Lee cameo in, on this beach. <laughs> well, that's what you get at Exposition Beach. That's where you, that's where you go. <laughs> hey, clothes, plot information, and the character's creation. Hi, Stan. Right. Um, still a great scene, though. Like, watching him kind of, oh, yeah. you know, brought low and looking disoriented and, you know, very afraid is uh, is earned. Um, we got to Bobby talking. She, you know, has a little sit down with Rogue, basically saying, hey... Xavier's super pissed at you. Um, you know, you're never supposed to use your power against another mutant. And uh, says, you know, you really should just, you should just go. And um, just a wonderful moment, the way it's sold. Because you could sort of buy it as, you know, it's really yeah. him. She certainly would have no reason at this point to suspect anything was up. Um, so she freaks out and yeah. she leaves. And, of course, we are, it was revealed to us that this is Mystique. And, I mean, especially building on kind of what we were alluding to before, uh, you know, Sean Ashmore's kind of look on his face as she runs past him out of there and that he got to see that, that you're like, you know, oh, yeah, and this next scene, that was then, it manifested as this kind of, like, anger and fear of, like, you know, like, oh, she's going to be an outcast among the outcasts. Um, and... Like, it's really interesting the the way, you know, going back, knowing that it's Mystique, the phrasing that she uses. Because she doesn't know what happened in the mansion last night. She just has, you know, like, Bobby come out and say, it's like, you know, I hear that you're stealing other mutants' powers. And she tries to defend herself. It's like, no, 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 I just I just borrowed. And it's like, you never use your power on other mutants. It's like, oh, you know, like... He, she could just be coming in, you know, just like as a bluff of just like, you know, oh, your power is anathema even among other mutants, like not even knowing what happened. But as the audience, we buy it. It works on those two different levels. Um, and especially interesting, uh, again, you know, to go back to the source material in the comics, uh, Rogue 
after she's kind of driven out of her home when her mutant powers manifest, uh, is adopted by Mystique. Like, Mystique is the closest thing she has to an actual mom. Um, and, you know, raises her and somewhat radicalizes her. And she initially is a part of the Brotherhood. Um, and then defects over uh, to the X-Men. So, I kept looking. It's... Clearly, they did not use that part of the backstory and the fact that the time between her running away from home and joining the X-Men, there's really no time in between for, you know, Mystique and her to have that backstory. But it was interesting to me in this scene to have them have that interaction of her kind of like, you know, flushing her out basically and like, you know, okay, yeah, run rabbit run so that, you know, Hunter Magneto can catch you. Um, But also like, bringing her into the ranks you know there was a part in of my brain watching the movie for the first time like oh are they going to make this part of it like she's trying to get her back or are they going to reveal that like her mom was mystique all along are you like clearly none of that is set up none of that is hinted at but it was interesting the way that like that was one of those points where my brain knowing the source material and not being as used to as i am now the ability and license of uh, superhero movies and comic book adaptations to differ from the books in very significant ways um, that still work. Um, like, I I had not yet been trained. This was one of those first instances of, oh, so this is what they're going to do for it. Oh, she's not her mom in this version. Oh, it still works. It's still a very emotionally charged scene, even without that dynamic. But it just gave it that like little extra pepper on top for me as a fan. Yeah. Um, so they, they move on this plot-wise and pacing-wise pretty quickly. That she leaves. Um, immediately Wolverine figures out she's gone. And yeah. we we get to Cerebro. So the, the plan is that uh, Xavier is going to use this machine called Cerebro to locate where Rogue went off to. Uh, we were introduced to the concept that uh, Jean, although she has some telepathic abilities, can't handle Cerebro. That's going to become important later. Um, and we see uh, Charles put this thing on. I love the way they render Cerebro in this movie. It's straight out of the comics. It's it's yeah. pitch perfect. They said, let's just build the thing the way it looks, you know, with the helmet in this. He's in this, like, it's not even a geodesic dome. It's like this, ser- this sphere built out of mirrors. Um, and he's in the middle of it. And we understand that this basically helps amplify and focus his psychic power. We also, are, you know, why, they quickly answer the plot question of why can't you just use it to find Magneto? And he says, I don't know. He he helped me build it, so he must know a way to cheat the system and not be found. Yeah. And the fact that, like, you know, you look at the architecture of it and, you know, the fact that it is all of those, you know, kind of metal tiles around and that the... Cerebro helmet and its design in this mirrors in some ways the, you know, Magneto's helmet in these movies. Um, And, you know, which of course has a very practical and functional reason that we, you know, come to find out. But like it, it makes so much sense of like, you know, it, it, again, it like all ties it into a reality. And, you know, and like you said, you know, the Cerebro 
helmet and computer have existed in the comics uh, for the longest time. They play a very important part in the Pride of the X-Men pilot that I mentioned earlier. And Magneto's always had the helmet. So both Xavier and Magneto have always had these kind of signature helmets. But they've never been like really linked to each other before or like tied in in any significant way in the comics before and the movie i thought found a really cool way to like directly link not only visually but functionally like our primary protagonist and primary antagonist kind of for well i mean overarching you know xavier's not a very active protagonist of course but um head good guy head bad guy let's say more um that like finding this way to link them again and alluding to, you know, that he helped build Cerebro in this universe. And again, we're kind of alluding to this backstory between them of, you know, what was this friendship like? What caused it to fall apart? And I think it's, it's so smartly done. Yeah. And I like the way they um, visualize Cerebro when it's operating, right? That he sort of sees all these people, they sort of pop into a mist um, almost the way like there's almost like a not a video game aspect to it, but it's like this very like kind of abrupt way they sort of appear, almost like uh, like almost watching like a, a something come in a slot machine and stop. Uh, yeah, they just sort of, I always like, thought of like microfiche of like you know like when you like scan through like you know old microfiche machines and you see the slides going by and then you stop at like the one you want and kind of was like no that's yeah. not quite the one I want like go a few head a forward oh no let's go a few back you know kind of reminded me of that. Right, so we get the sense that he can see anyone in the world, and, and in particular mutants, uh, and he figures out, hey, there's Rogue at the train station. It works perfectly. And so they dispatch Storm and Cyclops to go retrieve her. Logan wants to go, but he says, no, we can't send you out there. We still don't know what Magneto wants with you. you know, you're safer here. Um, that's not going to stop him, because <laughs> he's already stolen Cyclops' motorcycle. Right. Uh and we cut to Rogue, uh, this sort of brief moment of she's watching a mother kind of like caress her son, you know, who's, you know, for some reason is upset. And obviously that is, you know, killing her on the inside because she can never experience that again. Um, and Logan is there. He's you know, he's made his way to her very quickly. And, you know, he, he really comes to her aid. He's like, you know, hey, if you want to run... You know, you can run, you know, I'll, I'll basically, I'll back you, whatever you do. But I think this Xavier guy, you know, he may be the real deal and he really does care about you. So maybe you should stay. Um, he, yeah. He plays that and it's very kind well. of the, it's, you know, coming around again to, it's another moment of vulnerability between the two of them. And, you know, he's kind of come full circle from, you know, get the hell out of my truck to now, like, I'm coming to you. And I love Jackman's performance in this scene, like the way that without betraying the character at all, like he softens so much vocally and like his voice even pitches up a little bit to like be a little more friendly, a little more open, a little more like over the course of the scene in particular, as he's kind of dropping the cynical facade and just being like, you know, uh, you know, I think they genuinely want to help. And that's rare. Like, it feels like, you know, yeah, I'll back your play. But I am going to make the plea for these people who, you know, a day ago I had no time for and no patience with. Um, and it, it just feels, and 
the fact that it, when he says, you know, it's like, you know, I'm, I've got you either way. And she just, you know, looks up at him with like just so much sweetness and admiration in that moment. Like these two really have, I mean, it, the, this first movie is their story. It's the two of them on this journey like in parallel and intersecting with each other. And this is that real kind of like, I guess in a certain way, it is their personal kind of second act turn. Um, where like now she's really, he's opening up to her and she's turning to him. And it's a very sweetly played moment. That's about to get, Real fucking wrecked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we should mention in, in the middle of this scene, we cut away briefly to show that Mystique has sabotaged Cerebro. Um, that that yeah. happens so that we have to make sure we the audience is aware of that. Uh, and the we see Cyclops is now, and Storm are now at the train station. We see like kind of a woman kind of like shuttle her kids away. Like, oh, don't go near that mutant. Again, hitting that racism angle real well. And we get this fight between um, Storm and Cyclops on the one side and Toad and um, Sabretooth on the other. In the middle of the fracas, um, Toad uses his prehensile tongue to uh, take the goggles off of Cyclops, thus disabling him in a blast as he, like, destroys the roof of the train station, Uh, which is, it's a cool moment in terms of, like, spectacle, but it's also nice in that it reminds us, again, he's another mutant who, like, his mutation is also crippling. Yeah. And also, like, a visual illustration of kind of Kelly's point that, you know, this poor guy opens his eyes and can just cause untold amount of destruction. Um... That, you know, you see the just the roof of the terminal just, like, cave in. And, like, you know, we don't hear about any deaths or injuries. Of course, you know, it's a, it's a movie, a PG-13 movie. So it's like, you know, oh, everyone got out of the way of the wreckage just in the nick of time, I'm up. sure. He looked up. You know, it didn't vaporize yeah. everyone in it. Yeah. He just, like, but, like, the, but the roof, like, collect, like, the, just all of the wreckage, all the uh, debris... Falling like it's a destructive act, and you see on his face as he like you know whips his head around and like winces his eyes closed. You just see that kind of like you know no, I lost control for that moment, and look at what it did. Like yeah. it's a, I mean, James Marsden is so good in this role. Like I think he's so underrated in these movies, uh, and I th- honestly I think in everything he's just he's such a good actor, um, and I don't think he gets uh, enough uh, proper credit for his talent uh no he is he's is a very charismatic uh wonderful actor here and he makes this character who is written as kind of being like the the you know 80s douchebag from the rival dojo you know he's kind of written that way <laughs> a little bit but he makes him like he's able to kind of put enough humanity into it to say like yeah he's you know he's got a little bit of this like preppy pretty boy shit going but he's also like a stalwart member of the x-men who cares deeply about you know yeah. protecting people and it's like, especially in this moment when you really consider his power, and uh, this has always been like one of the most engaging part of parts of the character for me. Uh, like I love Scott Summers uh, for for so so long. Like um, 
early, early on uh, as a comics reader, really kind of felt for him and uh, kind of something about him always resonated with me. And it really is that, you know, he's that stoic boy scout kind of archetype that you see. And, you know, everybody always says is so boring. Oh, Superman and Captain America. And sorry, if you think Superman and Captain America are boring, you have not been reading the right uh, Superman and Captain America books or seeing the right Superman and Captain America movies. Or you just don't understand the character. I'm sorry, that's just how I feel about it. But with Cyclops in particular, like, there is a very specific reason uh, that he is such, like, a stalwart, stiff boy scout of a character. Just, like, very clean-cut, like, stick-up-his-ass, you know, kind of guy. And it's because if he takes the stick out of his ass, if he, you know, lets his guard down for even just a little bit... Look what he could destroy everything around him, like just untold destruction, and like having to live with that knowledge. Just like yeah, you would eventually just sort of train yourself to just be puckered up at all times. Like you know, you just have to be ride that razor's edge of absolute control. And I think you know, Marsden plays that so well across all of these movies, and he's not well served I think by the script of the third one but even and even in the second one he's not given a whole lot to do but what he's given to do in both of these first movies he really conveys those elements of the character for me um that like there is like a funny guy like Logan gets the like the obvious laugh lines but Scott is the genuinely funny one to me in every interaction between the two of them in this movie um and I think he just does a tremendous job with his character and doesn't get enough credit for it. Uh, at this point in the movie, Magneto appears. He just rips open the train. Uh, you know, Wolverine tries to stop him. And, Wolverine, you know, he says, what do you want with me? And Wolverine says, I don't, or Magneto says, who said I wanted you? You know, tosses him aside. And uh, they... Oh, the fact that, like, that little beat before he tosses him... It's so heartbreaking to me that, like, as the realization dawns on Wolverine and, like, he ju- he has that one moment to look over at Rogue and realize the truth of the moment and that he's utterly helpless to stop it before Magneto tosses him away. Yeah. Like, the fact that they allowed for that moment. Oh, because Magneto could have just tossed him and was like, who said I wanted you? Get away from here. But it's like you get that moment, you get that swelling Michael Kamen score, and we have not talked about enough about how good the music is in this movie. Um, but it just stings every time. Like I, you know, I've, I've seen this movie countless times at this point, dozens of times, and I, that moment always gives me chills every single time because it's so well shot, so well played so well underscored and then just watching him get, you know, just tossed back. Oh, yeah. it's such a powerful scene. Like yeah. even beyond the visual spectacle of it, just the like, you know, his help is like when Magneto's like making the claws spread with the magnetism and you just see the agony on Wolverine says, ah, oh, God, it's so good. And Rogue begs him to stop. And it's, oh man. Oh, sorry. I just, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I think. Well, and it reminds us that, you know, what a perfect um, match between protagonist and antagonist this is. And you have, like, he's got a metal skeleton. Like, he's useless against Magneto. You know, the, there's no way. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, at, le- at the very least, he didn't tear the metal off of his skeleton, which he has done in the comics. Right, or he could crush him his internal organs like a tin. Oh yeah, you know. Um, yeah. So they trank Rogue. Uh, they take her out. They go out in front. They have this sort of like Terminator Two moment where he goes out in front of all the cops, and he just takes all the cop cars, lifts them up into the air, puts them down on top of each other, and then turns all of their guns, literally lifts their guns, you know, into the air. Points them back at everybody, and he you fires a gun. Homo and has it sapiens like, and your guns. I just love that moment of that bullet like spinning in that guy's forehead, like just you know, like a millimeter away. Um, to, oh yeah, and, and it's all just a flex. Like he doesn't really plan on killing anybody. He's you know really just like he's just there no. to make a show. As he, you know, but as especially with that like bullet to the guy's forehead is really you know because at that point that's when Xavier is taken over. Uh, Sabretooth and Toad. And, you know, so he like, you know, he's like, you know, oh, you know, let him go or I'm going to kill all these, you know, humans. And was like, you know, all right, you're going to call my bluff. And, you know, fires it and is just spinning it there in the guy's forehead and then cocks all the other guns at once. Is like, I don't think I can stop them all, Charles. Like, it is. I mean, it's not just a flex for like his own ego. He's... Like, legitimately saying, like, you know, okay, Charles, you want to play? You want to use your powers? I can use my powers, too. And it's a great standoff between the two of them because, we, as you just mentioned, Charles is there. And Sabretooth, mm-hmm. being mentally controlled by Charles, is, you know, there to grab Magneto. And Magneto's like, you're really going to do this? You know, this is a stalemate. Nobody wins. You know, you're not, you can't stop me from, you know, I can't control all these bullets. And if you do anything to me, they're dead. Um, and Charles has no choice but to kind of you know let that let him go, and Mystique flies him away. And you get that first like real visual explanation from Magneto of like you know oh you know trying to read my thoughts, Charles, and tap, like, tap. taps the helmet. Yeah, and then you know, and I love that you know he he knows Charles can hear him through the saber tooth and Toad. He knows both of his minions are under Charles's control at this point. And everything they see in here, Charles can see in here. And I love the, like the little cuts back and forth, like to Charles, you know, parked nearby, talking, and then like it cuts over to the two minions, and like you know, just the matching between like the dialogue is like really well done there. But then Magneto has that moment of like you know, oh, it's like oh, trying to read my thoughts, and then raises his voice up to speak directly to Charles. It's like, I know you're in earshot, and I know I could very easily, like, you could hear me if I whispered what I'm about to say right now through my mind-controlled minions. But I know you're nearby, and I want you to hear me with your own ears. And it's it's such a great acting moment from uh, McKellen. Yeah, again, this is the reason you need Ian McKellen to make this work. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Uh, so the team regroups at the X-Mansion. You know, Wolverine is just like, let's just go. Let's go find her. Um, and at this moment, Kelly stumbles in, um, you know, not looking so hot. And we kind of, he's there to sort of deliver the last piece of the exposition puzzle that he got from Exposition Beach. Right. And, um, you know, we, we understand that his body is, he has been forcibly mutated by Magneto and that his body is rejecting that 
mutation, which we're about to see in a very visceral scene where, you know, he's lying on the table, Storm is kind of tending to him. They have this kind of moment where he, you know, he starts to, you know, she says, do you, you know, do you hate us? We're not, you know, we're not all like this. Um, you know, she says, sometimes I'm afraid of normal people. Um, and he says, well, I think you've got one less person to be afraid of. And he literally just melts into just water and is gone. Yeah. It was, it's interesting. Uh, like I, I've watched so many like behind the scenes featurettes on this and this, the techniques they use to create this effect of his body kind of, uh, liquefying, um, of the actual, of like, you know, of Bruce Davison on the table of the digital effect. And then at a certain point they just had like Halle Berry standing there next to a trash bag filled with water and had like one of the ADs, like just out of frame with an exacto knife, just kind of like run across and slice it open to have the water kind of like dump out. And it's just this really interesting kind of fusion of the digital and the practical um, in a film that has like a number of digital effects. But I love like this one because, you know, it is really that just really amazing fusion between the two. And it's so well done. Yeah, and I like that, you know, I, th- I think some of the CG stuff is it looks a little, you know, 2000 era for me. But but the more important yeah. thing to me is the the novelty of, like, what this is. I've never seen any character die like this on screen. You know, like, they could have gone mm. so many body horror ways with this. They could have done a million different things. And having him literally just turn to just a puddle of water um, is so kind of unique and, and kind of freaky and, and different. It's comic booky, but it's... Um, you know, it's just it's just different and and surreal almost. It's it's really cool. Yeah, it's a, there's a real like body horror element to it because you really see like the realization on him and like before he fully turns to liquid, like there's this moment that it almost seems like he's like drowning on himself to a certain extent, and then like he expands and completely collapses into a liquid state. Um, and it's just like, it's, it's horrifying. And the fact, and like Aurora's just response to it in that moment, like as she's like holding his hand and then the hand turns to water in her grasp and she's like, ah, like, ah, I gotta go run and tell the others. And and get my Swiffer. <laughs> um, so, I'm sure there's a drain in the in the in the medical bay. Of course. Um, so now we're in the end game here. Uh, we you know we we put together what this means that you know, um, Magneto is going to do this to all the world leaders who are meeting at the summit, thinking he's going to mutate them all, and that that will once they're all mutants, they won't want to persecute mutants no more. Uh, but Magneto doesn't know what we know, which is that this this shit doesn't work. Uh, it's just going to kill a bunch yeah. of people and likely lots of New York too. Um, so uh, Professor X goes to Cerebro to try and see what he can figure out. That triggers the um, the booby trap that Mystique set, and he is rent- he is taken off the board. He's unconscious. Uh, Gene is working on fixing Cerebro, and um, we you know she she's working on it anyway. Uh, she decides, I'm going to go for it. She, this almost 
takes her off the board too, but she's able to at least figure out, you know, again, where Magneto is going and what he's going to do. Uh, and now we're at the point where, and again, like I got, I got, like I got a shout out uh, Marsden's performance, both like talking to comatose Xavier, and then when he realizes what Jean's doing and is like trying to race to, to stop and protect her, um, he's so good in it. And then like ah, just the moment between the two of them of him like like all he cares about in that moment is making sure she's okay, and she's like. I like I got the information. I, I like I did it. Yeah, it nearly killed me, but like I managed to do it. And still, all he cares about really in that moment is her. And it's just it's such a just wonderful encapsulation of their relationship. I feel like right. Uh, so we get to the the Brotherhood is now inf- infiltrating at Ellis Island. Um, you know, uh, Toad just straight up crushes a guy by jumping on him. Um, they bring in the torch. Which was, uh, uh, that was a cameo from uh, one of the, uh, credited as a, a story by credit, uh, Tom DeSanto. Um, so w- one of those kind of names that's in contention about who actually wrote this movie. Um, but uh, he, uh, yeah, he was, he's credited with story and I think he was a, a producer on it as well. Um, but that is a, uh, his little cameo of getting crushed by Toad. Um. <laughs> uh, we get a great scene of Magneto and Cyclops. Uh, I'm sorry, Magneto and uh, Rogue in uh, chains, and basically saying, "Are you going to kill me?" He says, "Yeah, sorry, um, but this is you know." He gives her the evil plan. Um, you know, the, the, her it says her sacrifice is necessary for their survival. Um, we get Cyclops explaining the plan, and he's saying, this is where he says, yeah, but the problem is this is going to affect, you know, half of Manhattan. Um, so they suit up, and we get our famous line of, you know, what did you expect, yellow spandex? Um, and <laughs> it's a great line, and, you know, this is this is the first superhero, modern era superhero movie that's really grounded in reality. You could argue that uh, the Donner Superman films are, but certainly, like, nothing, like, as as dark and cool as Tim Burton's Batman is, that's not our world. It's a gothic Tim Burton yeah. world. You know, this is like, no, no, no. You know, we, we got to make these characters look like they live amongst us. And that will mostly carry through for all of the stuff that comes after. Um, so an important moment and a good choice. Uh, Storm. Yeah. And like, and I, I like the line. I know it gets a lot of flat kind of retroactively and people being like, Oh, you know, you're, you're so embarrassed by the genre. Why are you even doing it? And it's kind of like, it's, it's a cute little winking nod. I don't think you need to dissect it too much more than that. It's like, you know, yeah, they wear, especially Wolverine, they wear, but they all wear yellow spandex. Like that was the X-Men's original kind of uniform. When like, this is that version of the original teams kind of yellow and black outfits um, or yellow and blue, depending on how you, or gold and blue, depending on how, what, uh, which artist is coloring it and whether it's like, you know, is that actually blue or are you just coloring it blue to shade black? Um, the thing that I really appreciated about it, you know, is that it's not just them wearing full on black leather bodysuits. Like every one of them has like a little, even if it's just the piping with a different color on it, like, there's a little nod to, like, the kind of, their comic uniforms. You know, the fact that that Wolverine does have that yellow piping on his outfit. Which also makes me wonder, like, 
because that was clearly just you know like sitting there that used to be someone else's uniform and i've always been, been like, it's like who was the x-men who left the team who wore that outfit before wolverine <laughs> and storm gets her little cape uh because mm-hmm. you know, she's storm and she has to have a cape it's like it looks cool um but yeah they get these it's not just about you know function there they are still superhero costumes they're just it's that little and you open up the door that little bit more to make audiences more openly accept some of the more colorful and even outlandish costumes that will come to see in the years and decades to come but this is that first little toe through the door um that you know has to happen and they look cool like you know i I know it's a departure from the comics but y'all it looks fucking cool yeah they're good outfits it's a a good costume choice yeah um we get the hero shot of the x-jet taken off we zip off to ellis island they walk in with seemingly no resistance um and we get that moment of wolverine you know he's setting off the metal detector and then flipping him off with the middle claw which is uh, nice yeah. considering he's willing to do that f- to make a point because, as we know, it hurts <laughs> just to do that. Um, so, uh, and we have this cool moment where Mystique has disguised herself as the Statue of Liberty. Uh, Logan senses something's off, and we get this fight where she, we get Logan on Logan uh, fighting each other, which is great. It's it's a really clever idea. It's perfectly shot. It looks amazing. Yeah, and they also do a nice job of kind of letting you know that like. Her, you know, yeah, she can make claws. She can do that, but they're not adamantium. Like she's not, she can't do what he can do. Um, yeah, and, we and I love the, that. Like when he slashes through them, like it's her voice screaming. When like he opens it, and like and Jackman does such a great job of playing Mystique, pretending to be him. Yeah. Like the little taunting kiss that she gives the actual Wolverine, and that moment of like screaming out in pain when he slashes through the fake claws. Like it's just. I mean, that's just, that's Jackman's range. I think, you know, he, he excels at every point in this movie. And then, you know, that he's playing a whole other character, pretending to be the character he's played all this time. And he still does it so well. I think that's just like a a real testament to his range and versatility. Yeah. Uh, So while he's doing that, Toad is coming after Storm. And he does this weird little like dance at first, I don't know how else to describe it's, it. It's a Scottish jig. That it's was jig. Ray Park ad libbed that on set. That was uh, that's yeah. his little kind of like nod to his uh, his Scottish heritage. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's funny. And then he does he like spits in her face, which like cover she can't breathe. It like covers her face in goo that hardens. And Jean's face. It's our Jean's face. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, so he flips up to um, to Storm, or, and they're off fighting each other. Cyclops finds Jean is able to. Uh, take that off of her face. Uh, meanwhile, we get this uh, Logan and st- is still fighting Mystique, and we get that like money shot of her like flying through the air, kicking and transforming. That was in like every commercial and every trailer. That shot oh, looks yeah. so good. Uh, it's, it's incredible. So good. It's still so good. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, they uh, Cyclops. I'm uh, sorry, uh, Storm. Uh, comes up to the elevator and blows Toad back, delivers what is a notoriously bad line about, uh, you know, we know what happens to a Toad when it gets struck by lightning. Same thing that happens to everything else. Kaboom. But a scientifically accurate statement. <laughs> She's not wrong, uh, but it is clunky as shit. Um, and and St- Toad is no more. Um, they. <laughs> I do honestly feel like, and I've had this conversation with friends before, I feel like that would have been a good line in another movie. 
Like it's just the only reason it stands out and is clunky. I feel like in the is in this context, it feels out of place in this movie. Like the at least the kind of I guess urban legend that I've heard is that that was a kind of vestigial line from uh, Joss Whedon's pass at the script uh, mm-hmm. for this film, and like and it feels like a very Whedon-y line. Um, There's a way for that line, and I'm like in a Joss Whedon pinned movie. This probably like you know if this was like the if this was the X Men by the guy who wrote Avengers, I think that line works just fine. I think it like it does not feel like something this version of Storm in this movie would say. And it's like, and it's delivered in the, such this like self-serious gravitas tone that, you know, she's, you know, had this whole time because she's a goddess. Why wouldn't she have that tone? And like, and so it doesn't work tonally with the movie that's happening in front of us. But I'm like, every time I hear it, I'm like, I don't feel like it's an objectively bad line. It's just in the wrong movie. It should have been cut from this script. Right. Uh, is is my whole like uh, my my little bit of uh <laughs> apologism for um <laughs> storm's terrible k o line to toad yeah uh so storm is talking to logan um he smells and recognizes that this is mystique pretending to be storm he stabs her and says you're not part of the group at which point the rest of the group shows up and he says it's me it's me and he says prove it and he says to scott you're a dick and he says okay uh, that is funny. That is legitimately very funny. I heard like every almost every time I went to the theater, and like every time I watch it with friends when it uh, first came out, that "you're a dick" line gets such a big laugh that the like to me way funnier Cyclops fan. Okay, just like that's the joke line. That's the funny part. We know Wolverine thinks he's a dick, and the fact that like Cyclops is like, "Hey, you call me a dick?" He's just like, you know, yep, that proves it. I'm like, yep. that's the funny line. I laugh way harder at the okay than I do the you're a dick. Yeah, it, it's a good interchange. Um, the team is now, uh, they get up to the torch where they are immobilized uh, by Magneto. Uh, they're all kind of like pinned to the, the internal, the, the interior of the the thing. Torch. Uh, the torch, yeah. yeah. Or the, the, the base of the, or the, the crown, sorry. Right, sorry, the interior of the Rogues crown. in the torch. Right, yeah. not the torch. Um, and it's, again, this is where we get that, like, how are we going to solve this puzzle with our powers thing? Because Storms is, I can't use lightning, the whole thing's metal, we'll all get electrocuted. Um, you know, Scott can't blast Well, no, Cyclops tells her to, and then Magneto says, yes, you know, lightning and a giant copper conductor. I thought you lived at a school. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's a nice... It's taunting them, I love it so much, it's so good. Yeah, it's really well done. Um, and... so, and then, but, like, Magneto further talking, like, Magneto giving them the, like, we shouldn't be enemies, you should be on my side, I'm doing this for you speech. Mm-hmm. And I love that, like, it's not, you know, Scott or Gene or Aurora making some big heroic speech in that moment that, like, kind of turns Magneto or, like, you know, drives him off. It's Logan kind of telling him, it's like, you know, calling him out on his hypocrisy. It's like, you're so full of shit. Like... If you really believed in this cause so much, you'd be up there. He's not trying to convince him not to do it. He's just like calling him out. It's like, yeah, you're a BS hypocrite just like everyone else. Like, right. You're going to so take in keeping with that character. Him. He's like, 
It's like, I don't care about the world leaders down there. I don't care about anything. But it's like, you know, I care about the girl that you're using for it. Mm-hmm. And if you had the actual courage of your convictions, you'd be willing to die for them. Like, that's Logan's big problem with it is you're not you're going to destroy half of New York. It's you're a hypocrite who's about to kill my friend, which feels so in keeping with his character. That kind of anti-hero kind of vibe that he brings to it. Yeah. Uh, And now we get the solution to the puzzle, which is for Logan to deploy his claws through himself, which we know is very painful, but it allows him to cut himself. Because he has the courage of his convictions. Yeah. Uh, and so we get this uh, fight between him and Sabretooth uh, on top of Lady Liberty's head. Um, Magneto is now starting the plan. He's given his power to Rogue to run the machine. Um, and we get this money shot of uh, Wolverine. Like He gets thrown, but he puts his claws into one of the spires on the statue's crown and goes like around it. Like 360 degrees and lands <laughs> on it. Again, a shot that was in every commercial and every trailer. Uh, yeah. looks Still looks great. The, the shot that makes me always say, who needs physics anyway? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> you're exactly right. Who needs it? Uh, so, uh, the, this fight goes on. Uh, and uh, Jean eventually uses her telekinesis to put her goggles, put the, or put Cyclops' goggles near him. So that he can blast Sabretooth again out of the fight and take him off the board. Um, and the plan is now to get Logan up to the torch to stop the machine and rescue Rogue. And the backup is for Cyclops to just blast it, if that won't work, to save everybody down below. Because we can see the light, that white light is again emanating from the thing. And um, uh, so Gene... Um, basically uses her telekinesis to get Logan up to the torch. Uh, Wolverine tries well, to Well, Storm uses her, like, winds to blow, because, like, you know, they clearly can't just have, like, everybody has to play a part here. Right. So Storm uses her wind to, like, blow him up, and then Jean uses the telekinesis to, like, stop him in midair so that, like, you know, him, he yeah. doesn't overshoot. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's like, it probably would have been easier just to telekinetically lift him, but then Storm wouldn't have anything to do in this final part. So. <laughs> That's right. Um, so Wolverine tries to stop Everyone gets it. a participation trophy in the X-Men. That's right. Um, Mag- Magneto's kind of holding him back. Uh, and eventually uh, Cyclops says, I got to take the shot. And she, he shoots Magneto, which gives Logan the opportunity to, to break the, the rings that swirl in the machine. Basically, just break the machine. Um, yeah. Rogue is uh, wiped out. Um, her hair now has that shock of white in it. And he let and Logan lets her touch him to borrow her his healing factor to heal herself. This uh, is also probably I mean, like it's such a good scene in and of itself, but this moment where he is I mean, he's already made the sacrifice of like, you know, like stabbing himself, going through that pain, not really even knowing because he's probably going through a couple of vital organs to, you know, make that stab work. So this is the second time he's willing to sacrifice himself in this moment. And he's just like and he knows what will happen to him. Mm-hmm. And like you know, and puts the hand on her, and nothing happens, and just like the music swelling is so heartbreaking. Like this was probably my favorite theme of Michael Kamen's in the whole movie. I went and bought the soundtrack, the the score for this movie, pretty much for three tracks. This the like main theme, 
and the the music when the the X jet is taking off. I love those like three pieces of music, and that, like the whole thing is good. But and the thing that like kind of twisted a little bit of an eye. Michael Kamen, amazing uh, film director, uh, film composer, um, also composed the score for Mr. Holland's Opus. Hmm. In which this theme appeared. Like years later, I went back and rewatched Mr. Holland's Opus, and like this bit of music, my favorite bit of music in the entire X Men score, is lifted note for note from a moment in Mr. Holland's Opus. And I was just like, say it ain't so, Michael. Say it ain't so. <laughs> so heartbreaking to me. But it still works. It, and it works so much better in this moment, personally, for me than it did in. Mr. Holland's Opus, which is a great film in its own right, but um, yeah. it's like it's so just listen to that, like you know, that ba da ba da da da. It's oh, just like pulls at the heartstrings, and then it like it starts to like die out just a little bit as he as Logan realizes, like, no, she's gone, it's too late, I can't give her the power. And then you yeah. see like the look on his face as like the it starts to get leached from him, and every wound he's taken over the course of this movie reappears reopens and it's just and you see her come to and see him and she understands the sacrifice he's made and this look on her face of like no no i didn't mean to like ah it's just it's so good it's so so good and i know i've said that so many times about so many scenes of this movie but that's because it's a really really good movie uh, so now we're into denouement territory. Uh, so just kind of a few key points on this before we get to kind of the best part of it. Uh, so obviously everybody's okay. Uh, all the all our heroes are okay, including Xavier. Um, we do get uh, one more. We uh, we referenced him earlier, uh, but David Hayter gets a cameo um, mm-hmm. in the aftermath of the battle when they find uh, Mystique having shapeshifted into a uh, a security guard right. um who we recognize from the three wolverine claw marks in her but the cop who uh discovers her um is uh, david hater who is uh, credited as the uh screenwriter for uh this film uh that that is his wonderful epic <laughs> moment as mm-hmm. museum cop <laughs> uh so we find out a couple things here uh, again uh, we find out mystique survived and and is now masquerading as senator kelly who has mysteriously reversed his position on the mutant registration act interesting Uh, yes uh and we hear that uh his assistant henry was mauled by a bear in the background which i think is very (laughs) funny um (laughs) uh we find out that wolverine is is he running again no but he's going to go off to alkali lake to investigate his origins and uh, he's, he's got to head off to the sequel real quick. You're right. Uh, but he tells Rogue that he likes the, <laughs> uh, the, the white in her hair. Um, he gives her his dog tags and says, you know, he'll be back. Um, so we know they're they're OK. Uh, and he goes off and we get our, our last scene, which is, again, thank God. they have Well, before all that, we yeah. get because uh, we get Gene him waking up again uh, mm-hmm. under Gene's tender care and uh, and her. Telling him the uh, <laughs> that uh, Rogue had taken on some of his uh, less desirable personality traits for a few days, which I thought was like such a great little kind of like B side story 
that we never got to see of just like the two days of Rogue being a grumpy, cynical Canadian asshole. Um, that, you know, I was just like, oh, that's such a great, like, you know, just a little, that could have been like, oh, in the modern parlance, like a whole like Marvel one shot or, and I think they might've done like a little backup, uh, mini comic that told the story. I don't, I don't remember reading it myself, but I remember hearing that they'd actually gone back and told that story is like, it was either like as a DVD special feed and like the special edition it came as like a little backup comic or they sold it at Pizza Hut or something, you know, one of those little kind of incentive uh, things and uh, Jean kind of that very tender moment of uh, her saying, you know, that she thinks uh, Rogue maybe has a little crush on him and Logan just very plainly saying like, I'm in love with someone else and just, and before they can really pursue that line of thought, like she kind of, cause you have that moment of her considering, she's like, you know, you know, and before she can say anything, either accept or reject it, he's kind of like, he's just like, Oh, Hey, by the way, uh, <laughs> just <laughs> changing the topic. Cause I don't want uh, my heart to get broken right now. <laughs> so, um, and then like, yeah, I'm going to go, uh, at the road. And, uh, and, and of course, Xavier comes back and has his little tender moment with Gene as well. Uh, Gene, Gene, the denouement machine, uh, right. Giving everyone emotional resolution, uh, before they go riding off into the sequel. Yes. Uh, and we get our last scene with Charles playing chess with Magneto inside his, uh, plastic prison, uh, where they're keeping him. And, uh, I love this interchange because again, it keeps that philosophical debate between them alive and he's you know oh, Magneto yeah. says don't you worry about that mutant registration act passing if, some, if this, the ad didn't pass this time but someday they they will and Xavier says yeah I do worry about that um, but I, I also feel pity about whoever comes to the school looking for trouble um, <laughs> and Eric says you know why do you come here and he says I'm continuing to search for hope uh, and he says well this plastic prison won't hold me forever War is coming, and I'll do what is necessary. And uh, uh, to which uh, Xavier replies, "I'll always be there, old friend." And uh, he walk, he rolls his wheelchair out, and we see this plastic thing is like suspended over a bottomless pit. Um, and uh, we, he puts down <laughs> the um, the king, at, uh, and Charles has apparently checkmated him, at least for this game. And that's the end of the movie. Um, what uh, it is, know, and the end of such a good movie. Yeah, like I said before, I have my issues with it. I, you know, I think you know, if you poke too many holes in, in certain aspects of the plot, it gets creaky. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. still a very solid film, especially considering the hell it went through to get made. And uh, you know, again, the progenitor of all of these superhero movies. We don't get any virtually Absolutely. nothing. We'll be talking on this podcast exists without this movie. Yeah, everything comes from this like you know i mean there were certainly marvel movies uh that came out uh before this and we will uh, we've alluded to a few and we've uh and we'll talk about them all in due time i'm sure but this was even beyond just like the marvel movies this kick-started the just the current kind of superhero renaissance I mean, that like I we're said, in. You yeah. know, it was... This is a proof of concept. You know, that that's what this is. Yeah. This is this is a... Um, it, this proved that these types of movies could be viable, and it basically gave the template 
that everything that was at least the successful stuff would follow. Um, mm-hmm. Just a, you know, a really impressive piece of cin- uh, cinematic machinery in that regard. Um, a lot of big chances yeah. were taken here in terms of the design, in terms of the the way, the tone, um, and you know, again, the feeling I had back in two thousand when I walked out was like they did it. They took these characters and they put them on screen. They were tr- basically true to the characters in the comics and true to the spirit of the comics. And they just told a, a fun story with those characters. Um, and and it just said, here it is. This is how you do it, and it works. Yeah. And it feels so, like, of a piece. It doesn't feel like, for the fact that there was so much behind the scenes going on and so much kind of, you know, micromanaging and rescheduling and everything, it does, like... Very little of that comes through on the screen. It feels very much like it all went according to plan in certain regards. Yeah, it feels like a very small, intimate film for all the spectacle and all the big uh, like action and powers and everything. It's a character piece in a lot of ways. It's and I think that like that was kind of I think what they had to come back to. And we talked about this uh, last time with Iron Man, but it's really. I think what some of the movies lost and not, not the X-Men movies specifically, but that in the kind of glut of superhero movies that, you know, came out, they got, you know, kickstarted by this and by Spider-Man that like, you know, so many of the ones that were just, you know, kind of factory farmed out after that. And like, you know, Oh, this is the next big thing. Let's, you know, just crank them out. Um, Some of them lacked that heart and that kind of, uh, filmmaker sensibility like making it a good story first making it a a focused on the characters first kind of got lost a little bit in the shuffle for you know some of the years um and then you come back to it with the mcu and with uh nolan's batman films i really feel like um that like let's tell a good story and a good character driven story first. Like all of the superpowers, all the costumes, everything that makes it like of the genre genre is just trappings. You still have to have that heart and that core underneath it. And that's really, I think what they rediscovered that like that Iron Man did so well, that Batman begins a dark Knight did so well, that the MCU has really found its pace and its you know tone time and time again, and found different ways to, you know, translate it. And of course, you know, like indie film and uh, auteur film, director's film, there are different kind of styles and there's different kinds of voices. And we've seen a lot of those now get translated to the film. This one really does, like you said, set that template. Um, not necessarily in terms of plot mechanics, not necessarily in terms of theme or tone or style, but just in that singular voice telling a story about human people going through something going through a journey discovering something about themselves about each other about the world around them and all the powers and spectacle and costumes and quippy dialogue none of it means a damn thing if you don't have that human element that strong heart driven narrative at the core of it and this movie does it well said um thank you 
Yeah. So we can close the book on X-Men. Uh, our next movie coming up, we're going to go uh, on a, a Wesley Snipes hunt. Uh, we're going to see Blade. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's your homework for next time is to watch uh, the first Blade film. And um, again, as I said up top, if uh, if you want to drop us a review on iTunes, that'd be awesome. If you want to talk to us, go to at go to the Marvels on Twitter. Uh, and with that, I think we can conclude things. So, Jordan, Excelsior. Enough said. Hey, hey, it's me. Prove it. You're a dick. Okay. <laughs>